1: tuning in to this program for the first time. Boy, are you in for a treat because it is our bi-weekly or, depending on who you ask, our bi-monthly excursion into looking up and knowing what's what. That's right. It's Dr. Sky Night for the next hour. You are going to be treated as I will be to the insights of Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and television broadcaster and an edutainer with expertise in astronomy and space. He's also a podcaster with the Red Apple Podcast Network. You could search the Dr. Sky experience at redapplepodcastnetwork.com. If you like what you hear for the next hour, you're going to love The Dr. Sky Experience. Uh, Steve, it's always great to talk with you. Thanks for joining me again.
2: Well, good morning, Frank. Good to be here on another one of these adventures. And if I may take the liberty of calling the radio show here, what? The Infinite side of midnight. I love it.
1: I love it. Uh, I'll tell you, Infinite describes my confusion and frustration (laughs) with... the U.S. government's explanation of these UFOs that we've shot down. So uh, we spoke at length two weeks ago about the uh, Chinese spy balloon, and uh, thankfully that's been recovered. Hopefully we get some good intelligence uh, over that. Since then, uh, there have been... Three more objects shot down. Now, we don't know what they are, and the government either doesn't know what they are or or they're not telling us. We've been told they're not extraterrestrial. We've been <laughs> told they're not Chinese, and we've been told they're not a threat. And just two days ago, we were told that the government is suspending any efforts to recover These items, which just is mind-boggling to me, the fact that we're willing to spend $437,000 per missile to shoot them down, but can't spend a little bit of time to actually find them and see what they were. Give me your take on where we are with these Chinese balloons and these related balloon threats, if these even are balloons.
2: Well, it's a very interesting story. As Secretary Austin, Secretary of Defense said, the three balloon objects or the three objects – UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, were definitely not of the Chinese character. Let's go back in time. We find out through reports from the Washington Post, if we can believe everything that we read, we have some skepticism on reports, no matter where they are, especially off the internet. But it's been identified through this Washington Post report that they have identified, that is, the military, two locations, one on the big island of Hainan off of China, in which there's an active program of what they call aerostat balloons. These are balloons that are tethered. They use them along the uh, United States border for many years for drug interdiction and tracking aircraft that come through. But they believe that this is the source, probably, of not just this Chinese balloon, the big inflatable, but also, get a load of this, Frank, another location in Mongolia in which they believe that is the military, that this is a serious effort by the Chinese military to do this, and the reason for the Hainan location according to those in the meteorological world, say that these locations are conducive to pushing these balloons up like a jet stream, higher up like we did over Alaska. But the strangest part of it is we still have no idea why they didn't shoot this down. I don't know if I reported this last time, but I know on John Katsimatiti's program, Cats at Night, we were talking a little bit more. Late breaking news then was that our military, one of the reasons why, not defending the Biden administration, but being open-minded nonetheless, is that some of our secret assets or so called secret military aircraft assets, these are called U two R Dragon Lady aircraft. They go back to the history of when, you know, Gary Powers was shot down, the big event with Khrushchev in you know, I believe what, nineteen sixty. But this modern version of the U two R has so many surveillance, you know, capabilities on it. It can sense things, track things, eavesdrop on things. So one of the theories was that we were way above the balloon, this U-2R, you wear like a spacesuit to fly it, that we might have been gathering so much, hopefully gathering so much information on that. And then we hear about the shoot down, but I still can't figure it out. Why would they let this thing just drift over America? And the deepest of conspiracy theories, and I read this, I don't believe it, who knows, is that these balloons in mass could have the ability to drop these type of fungal spores from the atmosphere trying to destroy American crop production. I mean, that's how bizarre some of this goes. But, Frank, it's still the most amazing story, laughable to the point where these three objects that are chased by F-16s, where, as (laughs) you reported, these Sidewinder missiles are not cheap. And the story goes that this was probably the one over Alaska, Canada, and then the one that went down over Lake Huron, a missing balloon from a bunch of hobbyists and they claim that the hobbyist actually had a call signal for their balloon known as K9YO-15, a $12 balloon shot down by a sophisticated aircraft. But here's the problem, and I'll stop on this, but it's so exciting, don't you think? There are stories that are out there. Tyler Rogelwey, who writes, of course, you know, for, for, for this military website that's out there, he, he's very, very credible. There's even reports that our F-22s, when spotted, possibly this object the one of the three, or the same one that was three, it interfered with our sophisticated electronics on these $200 million aircraft. Go figure. So what are we being told? Hardly anything. And what's the government doing, Frank? It's going to start up a whole new commission on unidentified aerial phenomenon. Here we go again.
1: So this this one item which yes. a balloon hobbyist group is claiming could be theirs, yes. um, and it seems they have some credibility That, uh, you know, it's gone missing and it does sort of fit the circumstances that was able to screw up the uh, the sensors or the the surveillance technology or the whatever the 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 operational ability of a two hundred million dollar aircraft. How can that be?
2: That's why I'm saying I doubt that very much. But I'm saying this is what you read out there. And let's say this. If indeed it was a hobbyist balloon. I'd like to talk to those hobbyists and talk to them and say, hey, we could use you working for the Pentagon to help us to deflect any other advanced, let's say, a foreign country that doesn't like us, to you know suppress their electronic system. So that's why even the story gets more bizarre. And as you said correctly, there's no more search. There's not an ongoing search for the debris. I don't know how deep Lake Huron is. I don't want to be there right now, and I don't think the water's too warm, But imagine that. We're not getting any answers. What about the answers about what was the payload on this particular Chinese balloon? And remember this. There's still some questions as to whether they shot an AIM-9, and I'm going to use the simple term, explosive-charged type of missile, or whether they actually shot a kinetic sidewinder, meaning one that just punctures. Right. Because why would you want to destroy this platform? Sure. Sure. And it was so ridiculous. I, mean, I have friends in South Carolina, like many people, and they were actually telling me, hey, Steve, I was watching the balloon up above my home, you know, 40,000, 50,000 feet. You could see it, gigantic. The thing is like the size of like 200 feet when inflated. But when they shoot it down or de- you know deflate it, I'm just looking at this thing. This is so ridiculous. The payload itself is what you want. The heck with the balloon. I want to see what the electronics are on there. And we've heard Nada, at least... I've been searching this. I don't know if you've come up with anything. What's the story on the forty some forty th- foot deep waters? You should imagine that they should be able to at least dig up something from forty feet of water, not four thousand feet of water. We've heard nothing, and that makes the whole story even more
1: complicated Well, they have indicated that they've recovered the the balloon and and right. what's inside it, but they haven't really told us much about about the <laughs> about the payload. Explain to folks if if you're able. Sure. Why in an era where countries are spying on one another using satellite technology and human intelligence and things of that nature, why when they have these sophisticated satellites, which both the United States and China evidently do, why would they need to use a balloon to, yeah, to spy or do whatever to monitor uh, other countries? Wouldn't the satellites offer everything that the balloon could offer and more?
2: Yes and no. And the the yes part, if it is, you get the good resolution from a spacecraft. And again, they're talking about our spacecraft, let's say spy satellites or surveillance satellites. The NSA has the best answer. They won't tell us. But from altitude, let's say 200 or 300 miles up, allegedly the cameras are so sophisticated, and also with their ground-penetrating radar, that they can actually resolve the headlines if you light a newspaper on the ground. But the answer that goes to the positive side of a balloon is that it loiters over an area for a longer time, and it also has the capability of eavesdropping on communications, mm. where a satellite in in orbit would probably have a relative difficulty in trying to pick up as much of those you know signals that are coming from the ground. And again, this has been used for so long. As I mentioned in our last episode a couple of weeks ago, the namesake of the, actually, the, the two F-22s that went up to shoot down the Chinese balloon, their call signs were Frank 1 and Frank 2, in honor of the Air Force Base that's just right behind my left shoulder right now, just by a few miles, Luke Air Force Base, Frank Luke Jr., who was the great Arizona balloon buster who shot down, what, anywhere from 14 to 19 of these German balloons in World War I. But it's so amazing. But the simple answer, I would think, is this. You have the ability to loiter for a long time if it's not shot down. And that begs the question, why wasn't this thing interdicted way over the ocean And if it's not our airspace, well, we don't shoot it down unless it's over our airspace and considered a potential threat. This thing just had its merry way. And also, people need to know that this balloon, the winds were not just favorable to the Chinese Communist Party. Allegedly, this balloon has the capability of doing some maneuvering. Mm. And where did it go? It went over Malmstrom Air Force Base, one of the most impressive Air Force bases. And Frank, not to go off into the UFO topic— but a long, long time ago, I've interviewed a gentleman named Captain Robert Silas, who was in charge out there of the, well, so much, and his MPs, they reported seeing a blue light come out of the sky. And if people look up this incident, I believe in 1967, it allegedly came over each one of the military you know, ICBM silos, shut down the nuclear missiles, and darted off into the sky. So it's obviously a very secret location. And the understanding that it continued, that is, the Chinese surveillance balloon, over Kansas, where another in-ground ICBM you know, cluster is, and also over Whiteman Air Force Base, the home of so many of the amazing B-2, quote, stealth bombers. This is not by chance.
1: Well, um, th- that is wild, and it makes sense the way you explain sure. it. The the uh, last question I have about this whole thing, and then we'll give sure. people an opportunity to call in if they have questions, 800-848-9222. We're talking with Steve Cates. If you want to uh, if you want to weigh in with anything we're talking about. Uh, So we were told after the Chinese balloon, the initial Chinese spy balloon, that we tweaked our sensors and tweaked our monitoring to uh, make them more sensitive and pick up these slow moving smaller objects and then uh, these objects, which were considered so inconsequential pre-balloon that we didn't even have to know they were there. Not only uh, are we able to spot them, but we're able to make the decision to shoot them down. Uh, my, uh, to me, it's a wildly inconsistent and just, uh, you know, absolutely inexplic- inexplicable policy when it comes to these objects going forward Mm -hmm. do we have any idea what our policy is going to be in terms of how to handle these sorts of objects well i think we
2: got spanked on this one obviously because if you look at some of the things that the chinese government has written i'm talking about the communist party their whole plan of trying to surveil there's a weakness here. Obviously, I'm not the only person saying this. I just agree with what I'm about to say here because, well, I'm agreeing with what I'm about to tell you. Apparently, they've found out that the middle ground is our weakness. In other words, we have the high ground in space where they have less sophisticated satellites than we do. That's the story. Ours are supposed to be the best in the world, developed by so many you know, serious science and engin- scientists and engineers. But the middle ground is this altitude area, let's say, where aircraft – above where aircraft fly. Let's say jetliners no higher than, say, 45, maybe 50,000 feet for private jets if you happen to have one. But the point is they've noticed, the Chinese, that this is a weak spot. And let's say this. What if this just went unabated and you continue to send balloons like this? One of the gentlemen that we both know, and I say this posthumously, we're so sad to lose him, was Dr. Peter Vincent Pry. And I know you've had some very interesting interviews with him, as I have, talking about the threat of EMP. So what's to stop that balloon if we kind of just shrugged their shoulders, you know, just ignored this and said, "Ah, oh, you know, it's just another balloon. Uh, it's nothing. It's not really doing anything. The ability for anybody like that, meaning a rogue nation, to fly or sail something high up in the atmosphere with a small, low-yield nuclear device, they've found the weakness. And I don't know. I imagine, as you said, tweaking our sensors – we need to have a much better ground-to-middle ground, to middle ground or, or middle space uh, you know, area to track uh, objects. I think we're weak in that. And I hate to knock our own country on this, but I think it's pretty obvious. 800
1: uh, 848 Larry is in Westchester. Larry, you're on with Steve Cates. Hello.
3: Good morning, Hi, Steve. Larry. has uh, anybody
4: asked the government if the pilots took photographs or videos of the three unidentified objects before they shot them down. As yes. far as I can tell, there's no information on photographs of these items.
2: Absolutely, Larry. You bring up a very good point. We're probably never going to know, and that's the problem. Why We're never going to know this. But allegedly on these F-16s, they carry these very sophisticated electronic pods that have the ability to track and sense in the infrared, in the visual spectrum, and they also have the ability to do a lot of other things, maybe to jam. These are pods. You see them on the sides of the under, underbelly. Uh, they're called stores on these aircraft. No, I haven't
4: heard anything, Larry. And
3: Nobody's asked.
4: Right. Any of these I haven't heard one either. Not one news person has asked the president, the president's yes. press secretary, or the sure. spokesman from the Department of Defense, where are the photographs? Nobody has asked about these things.
2: Larry, I'll tell you what I think in conclusion. Excellent question, really right on, Frank, but i got to add this. If anybody, the ninth Strategic Reconnaissance Wing, which has been home when the U-2s, I mean, when the SR-71s would fly, we knew all these people that ran it. But I think the best answer, Larry and Frank and everybody listening, is that we need to find out what those U-2 are, we'll, we'll never know, what the U-2 are, uh, Dragon Lady, with those sophisticated sensors. They flew above. They're mm. capable of flying above the balloon, and if they were interdicting and, you know, carrying on and listening in on the transmissions, remember that payload, it's what, what was it trying to do? It just doesn't have a tape recorder. So they think they're going to get back the surveillance platform and then unload it and say, oh, wow, look what we found. It was probably, I don't know this, but probably transmitting up to satellites in space. But those U-2Rs, gentlemen, and everybody listening, that's where the information is. I mean, they had a field day, I'm sure, with these balloons. The, the U-2Rs can fly above it. They probably got whole 360-dimensional views of this, listened in, jamming ability, all kinds of synthetic aperture radar. But uh, you're right, Larry. I haven't heard anybody ask that question to anybody in authority.
1: Uh, Steve, in terms of the the missions to Mars and Mars exploration in general – Right now, it seems our best bet to know what's going on on the surface of Mars is the Perseverance Mars rover. It's now been there two years. What do we know about what's going on on the surface of Mars? What have we learned from the Perseverance?
2: Well, happy birthday, Perseverance. And remember, this marks the second year. And if you look in terms of days on Mars, Martian days are called sols, S-O-L-S, so 710 some odd sols. Because Martian, a Martian day is 39 minutes longer than an Earth day. So what was the mission of this particular craft? And rover, as we talk about now, it's to seek signs of ancient life, collect samples of rocks they call regolith. These are broken rocks and soil samples to hopefully be returned you know, to the Earth someday by another mission. They have these little test tubes that they've been dropping. But obviously it was launched back on July 30th, 2020. It landed in this amazing area which more than likely, Frank, was a dried lake bed called Jazeera Crater. And on board, we all know this incredible little Mars little helicopter called Ingenuity. I didn't know this, but it's flown some 43 flights as of February the 16th, and it was only designed to run for 30 days as a demonstrator, but it sure impressed the entire world. So it flew back on April 19th of 2021. And how about this for a first flight? You know, The Wright brothers, I'm sure, out there in the cosmos would be very proud of this. It flew 19.8 feet vertically. No, excuse me, it flew 16 feet vertically and 9.8 feet horizontally. But uh, how about this, even more bizarre. Let's now go to Mars, since we're talking about the infinite side of midnight here. The local weather forecast from Perseverance just a few days ago, here we go. The high temperature of the day was 1 degree Fahrenheit. And the low at night, bundle up, folks, minus 116 below zero Fahrenheit. And the sun rose, whatever they call their time zone, since nobody's really decided which one it is. It's 6.08 a.m., local Martian time. I'm going to take the liberty of calling it that time zone. And sunset was at 6.37 p.m., local Martian time. But think about it, Frank. If you and I and the listeners were about to take that infinite journey beyond midnight, Get set for an eight- to nine-month journey. We'd probably be traveling 24,000 miles an hour, and we have to cover a distance. If you look at your odometer on your car, one of my little Toyota Scions, I love the little car, not to do a commercial, it just turned 88,000 miles for a 2015. That's the diameter of Jupiter. But in this case, I'd have to hope the Scion would last forever. You should have to cover 300 million miles just to get there.
1: Wow. Uh, Let me ask you what's happening with SpaceX. SpaceX is set to launch four new crew members to the International Space Station on Sunday. This marks the seventh crewed trip uh, to the space station for NASA. And it's clear that uh, SpaceX is um, only further investing in their efforts to uh, explore space in the private sector and their opportunities to partner with NASA in the public sector. What do we know about this uh, upcoming SpaceX mission? Well, it almost
2: seems like it's routine, don't you think, Frank? I mean, you look at the actual spacesuits that they have. They look like really designer clothing. The helmets don't look like the bulky ones of Apollo. But this is, as I say, routine. And, and obviously there's always you know dangers of going to space. So this particular Crew Dragon mission, the whole, the whole spacecraft is just so amazing. I mean, I've never been in one. That would be wonderful to take a tour or a mm. virtual tour. I'm sure it's on the Internet. But it's so spacious. It's like a around. you know, all these computer monitors. There's a lot of room to move around in there. So they're going up to the International Space Station, but there's not a lot of happiness on part of the cosmonaut or cosmonauts that are on the International Space Station. Because one of their Soyuz spacecraft, they've detected a leak, and that, unfortunately, is going to prevent them from coming back to Earth as soon as they had wanted to. But in all due respect to the Russian Soyuz, we have to say accurately, it's been one of the most reliable space ferries. But what SpaceX has done, Frank, is just so amazing. And again, I don't work for them, but I sure. surely support them. I'm just so amazed every time I hear this. But if we shift gears over to the other projects that they're doing, this monster rocket which is the starship and the big booster this is going to be still one of the most amazing launches if we thought that the artemis rocket with its incredible power which now still has the record now and it's going to go quickly they say when uh, elon musk launches the starship by the way it's a stainless steel like 160 some feet in in length it's that real sci-fi looking like 50s spacecraft from those b b movies yeah, I love that we it. love it's awesome And they purposely chose stainless steel over all these composites because of its ability to handle the transfer of heat. Because when you look at what this thing is going to do, I just showed this to a large group in Sedona the other night. We did a whole thing on the latest of space and what's happening. And you find out that the rocket, the booster itself is massive. The power of the rocket, it's got like 33 of these big Raptor engines. And they did test them. I think they got 31 of the 32 to fire properly. But when it goes... The launch tower is larger than what we see for Artemis, and it has this amazing mechanical arm called Mechazilla, and it <laughs> holds the booster. And when that thing goes, it'll have such tremendous you know, power, like maybe 12 million pounds of thrust, totally off the charts. But then you see the Starship separate as it's going to do an orbital flight. And this may happen in just a couple of months, if not sooner. But, Frank, when you see Starship, it makes all these maneuvers and you see it turn around, and you see the booster rocket actually come back to Earth, the massive booster. And if they do it right, which I'm sure they will, it will actually go back to the big launch tower. The Mechazilla arm will grab the big booster, so it's reusable. But what's even more amazing is the starship, as it's now you know glowing because of the reentry of the atmosphere, like this orange glowing like it's tickled... You know, an iron, something from your fireplace and then you see it glowing. This is amazing technology. But they've also said, honestly, that we could have an explosion or two, just like they had with starships. I think they're up to 15, and it was the last one that actually successfully landed. But, But, Frank, the people down there in Boca Chica are actually not too happy. They say they've terraformed that whole beach area into a very complicated area with a lot of noise. And also, we have to remember, the FAA still has to give permission, I don't know if they've gotten it, they may have gotten it already, to launch these giant rockets. So, in other words, you and I just can't go out and build a rocket with all our great expertise, right, and then just decide to launch it anytime we want just because we think we can. There's a lot of rules to follow, and the FAA, of course, gets involved.
1: Yeah, I can imagine – a lot of the neighbors may not be happy about uh, living next door to. I mean, you see how rough it is uh, living next door to an airport. All those years you were in Queens, you, you can will. imagine uh, you can imagine living next door to a rocket airport. All right, uh, we're going to continue with Steve Cates in a moment. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. If you have questions, that's one eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. I have many. If you are interested in what we're talking about, you got to check out the Doctor Sky Experience. You can check it out at Red Apple Podcast podcastnetwork.com or just search on any podcast app, uh, the Dr. Sky Experience. A ton of interesting stuff on there, a lot of great content. And we'll continue in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. Frank Marano.
1: 99 Red Balloons. You know, the inspiration for this song, believe it or not, was actually a newspaper article from the Las Vegas Review-Journal about five high school students in 1973 who played a prank to simulate a UFO by launching 99 balloons. And uh, now, if they were try to pull that these days, we would shoot them all down without any pretense of going, bothering to look for them afterwards. Uh, We're spending the hour with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster. And uh, you can hear his podcast, The Dr. Sky Experience. There is simply nothing like it. We're going to take your questions in a moment at uh, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Steve, uh, there has been some asteroid news since last we spoke. You know, I am perpetually uh, scared of an an asteroid putting us into either dinosaur territory or science fiction film (laughs) territory. Uh, Evidently, there's this new space radar that's going to hunt planet-threatening asteroids. And uh, there was this other oddly shaped asteroid that was once considered an impact risk for Earth that raced past the planet. Where are we on the asteroid front these days, Steve?
2: Well, Frank, we have a better capability of doing these predictions. But if you don't mind me taking the liberty, I just wanted to mention something more about the Dr. Sky experience for all of the listeners out there. It's a combination of interviews, not only from my time tunnel, as we go back in time, but also current ones. And just to give people an idea, like I love, and many people love the story of science fiction. So we have interviews up there coming very quickly. Billy Mume, June Lockhart... We have interviews with the great Walter Cronkite talking about space and things of that nature, but also about American exceptionalism. I spent time in the military. I spent time in law enforcement. And just like John Katsimatidis says after his shows every day, truth, justice, and the American way. So it's a combination of all that. And how about that? It's also a weekly report of what you can see in the sky. But going back to the asteroid situation, Frank, this is so amazing. Here's two examples of two things that came very close to the Earth. Back earlier this month, we had asteroid 2023 BU. It passed the Earth, it was a 16-foot object. It passed the Earth by only 2,000 miles. So that's just about, a little more a little more than what the, or a little less, I should say, than the distance that you and I are now. I'm in Phoenix, you're in the New York area. And that was amazing that it even was detected so much ahead of time, but the most amazing one is this little tiny asteroid called 2023 CX. It was discovered seven hours before it was going to make some sort of a splash over the Earth. Remember, it's only three feet across, which is still big. But the astronomers actually gave a prediction to when and where this would be. Imagine this. If we told you tonight, at a certain time, look in the sky and look over here, and guess what? My prediction and yours would be accurate. We might be able to sell tickets in a big arena if we had this right. So the astronomers predicted that it would show up over Paris and over the English Channel at 3 a.m. their local time. Frank, it showed up at 2.59. Not a bad prediction. So we're getting better at these predictions because of two things. The ability to source these objects out with these mega, megapixel television uh, telescopes mm. and cameras and the ability to calculate. The calculations is not as difficult. I don't know how to do them. The listeners probably don't. But the scientists that do this the greatest tool in their arsenal is now to have the ability to have these gigantic cameras that can search the skies and then they go into the mode of orbital planning and orbital mechanics but don't you think isn't that amazing that we can actually predict to the to a good amount of accuracy good amount of accuracy when and where these things might come we need that
1: Oh, no no doubt about it. I'm with you on that. 800-848-9222. We're going to get to uh, people's calls in a second. But you alluded to one of the things that you uh, focus on in the Dr. Sky experience, which is telling people what they can see in the sky. Anything yes. in the sky these days that's worth checking out?
2: Well, Frank, we have like a Super Bowl event if you're in the world of astronomy. Here it is. Tonight, on the true Washington's birthday, if your skies are clear, wherever you're listening to this show, the other side of midnight take a look right after sunset. Frank, the most amazing ongoing conjunction between Venus and Jupiter and the thin crescent moon will hang just to the left of the beautiful planet Venus. This is one of those amazing conjunctions. And I want to remind people that over the rest of this month, there are not many days left, obviously, what, about a week or a little less than a week left, by the end of the month, the courtship and the month of love with Valentine's Day now over, Venus continues to move closer to the giant planet Jupiter. She's the goddess of love. He's the god of gods in the mythological world. Frank, they're going to be the distant separation of a full moon. And these are two brilliant naked eye objects, even in the most brightly lit cities, downtown Manhattan, let's say, if you have a clear view to the southwest or any place that you're listening to this show. Don't miss it. I call it sacred geometry because of it. So it's like the biblical collection of, when we talk about the Star of Bethlehem, these are events that I think are so fascinating. It gives everybody a pause, don't you think, in these troubling times to take a deep breath and say, wow, that's really amazing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. 800 848 9222, a bunch of people lined up to talk with you. Let me begin with uh, Dave in Pennsylvania. Hello, Dave.
5: Hey, hey. hey uh, Good morning. Uh, Dr. Sky. Quick question. You know, when you you mentioned earlier, you know, in a spacecraft flying to Mars, you're going 24,000 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. How does a spacecraft navigate around or or if if there's debris of asteroids or particles in
3: space? Because going at that speed, wouldn't that rip the spacecraft apart? I I I don't know how. Yes. How does that? How do you do that? Because you can't see and steer around. They're going too fast. Dave, another
2: great question, just like Larry's before, but here's the answer. They don't really have a way to do that. It's not like I'm in the Millennium Falcon and you and I are sitting there with Chewbacca and we have some sort of a radar. That's true. You know, even micrometeoroids have the ability to puncture the hull, as it's done many times to the International Space Station. So you're absolutely right. There's no guarantee that we have some way of detecting unless you know future generations i'm sure will so we're really taking a risk out there because you are flying through space even though space is considered to be somewhat of a vacuum how right you are dave that there's so many particles out in space it doesn't take much but i would hope they have some kind of sense of knowing if it's a big one like a couple of hundred miles in diameter which would be an asteroid. But you bring up a good point. I don't think there's any real easy answer to that one.
1: Thank you, Dave. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Queens. Hello, Joe.
5: Hi, Steve. I just want to bring up two things. Yeah, Dylan. First, uh, has NASA used, like, say, some of the desert terrain or below the sea terrain or Antarctica, to, to test some of their uh, uh, simulate space to a degree, yes. that would be my first question. Sure. My other question is, that, I don't know if this relates as much to space, but what do you think of this facial recognition technology? There's a lot of controversy about its being deployed on uh, citizens without their uh, consent.
2: Well, I think we'll take the, for the first part of that. The easy part of that is, Joe, and again, good morning. Looking at these locations around the world, we started off here right up in northern Arizona with the Apollo astronauts when they were actually training to walk on the surface of the moon because up there just to the east of Flagstaff is a big lava field and it simulated as much as we could of the lunar surface. But they've also done this in other places, in other desert regions where they have a small rover. And I don't know, Frank, I can't remember the year and show, but we were part of an event with media to go to the University of Arizona And as one of the landers, there's been so many, they had a full scale, as if you went inside the building, of the actual terrain that they imaged from space, where this rover would be going. And as it supposedly landed, they then showed you how this thing was moving. But on the second part, Joe, I'm very concerned about this whole facial recognition thing. I mean, I like technology. But again, that's probably for another subject, right, Frank? Uh, Another time. Yeah, yeah. It's become overwhelming to the point where hopefully people will wake up and recognize that uh, there has to be, I think, some simple limitations to this stuff. Let's not follow the Chinese model, that is the Communist Party, in which now instead of just having a credit score, you know, don't don't blame people if their credit's bad for some things that are not their fault. But in China, they're doing what, Frank? A social credit score, and Joe, but it's all based on how you track and where you go, and well… That's a sad story, so I would hope somebody might pull the plug on that stuff. Uh, that's another subject, right?
1: If if we're talking about things on Earth, not necessarily related to artificial intelligence, but things that mm-hmm. uh, don't involve going to space, uh, talk to me about the Earth's inner core. I, I saw one headline uh, that you had sent me that it might sure. be slowing or reversing. What's happening on that front? Well, some Chinese
2: scientists that are very credible and others around the world, geologists, true geologists, have stated that through measuring the the time that it takes these seismic waves to penetrate the earth, they can actually build like a model of this. And what some of the some of these scientists are saying is that the inner core of the earth, which in many cases are believed to be a liquid molten core, okay, temperatures down there are terribly hot. It's very very nasty place to go that it might be slowing down and even reversing. But let's not alarm people, because apparently there's no you know, deleterious effects if something like that were to happen right now. It's not a polar magnetic shift. But what we've just discovered, this is very interesting, Frank, instead of having four layers of the Earth internal, we now have a fifth one. And why do we start from the top? There's the crust, the mantle, there's a thing called the inner core, and there's something, as we described before, this liquid core, that they think had slowed down or reversed. But now we're finding out, this is amazing, by these seismic reflections that are coming out. I don't know how they do this, but this is what they say they do. They've discovered a 400 mile wide core made of nickel iron in the center of the earth still. So think about that. The pressures must be so amazing, but how does a liquid molten core not ignite one that's internal to that one, this is one of the great mysteries and one of the greatest uh, things that we study out there. It's just so incredible what's happening with a 400-mile-wide uh, core. But here's something interesting, too. If you want to know from where you are right now, the distance in miles, just to show you how the Earth is really not as big as we think, from New York City to the North Pole is 3,405 miles, from the where New York City is to the equator is only 2,813 miles. But to go to the South Pole, Frank, you're 9,031 miles from the South Pole. And for those that really want to know this, the antipode, in other words, if you drilled straight through the earth, where would you come through if you went straight down from New York City? You would go, I have the coordinates, I won't bore you with those, but you would pop off maybe 500 miles to the southeast of Perth, Australia. And the farthest city from you, New York is Perth. With a distance in kilometers of some 18,701 miles. Why am I telling you all this? Because the Earth's diameter at the equator is 7,927 miles wide. Where pole to pole, it's only 7,000, you know, eight hundred to 7,900 miles. So the Earth is wider at the equator by 27 miles. And I promise I won't send you my last picture <laughs> after the workout. But I'm a little oblate, as many people can be around the
1: equator too. <laughs> <laughs> you, you and me both. Claude is in Baltimore, <laughs> waiting patiently. Hello, Claude.
5: Hi, Doctor Sky. I, I hey, heard you
3: George, I've heard you on R Bell, George Norrie and oh, we're yes. going to discuss some science fiction here. It, yes, sir. I've heard of a story. I don't know how true it is, but there's a Project Blue Beam that the government has. It's oh, yeah. a project, right?
6: Yes.
7: And what
5: it does, they've got holograms and they can make Jesus appear. They can make thunder. They can make
4: anything. They can make you talk to you or anything. And uh-huh. and I know you, some people think I'm
8: crazy when I tell you this, but they can make fake UFOs appear and, and like shoot them down and everything, and they really ain't doing nothing.
2: Claude, you're absolutely right. There is such a theory out there. It's not me that proposed it, but I can tell you right now from our coast friends. And, again, a great show with great guests for the years. It, obviously, the loss of Art Bell is a big thing to those out there. It's a sad one. Oh, yeah,
5: movie. I love Art Bell.
2: But here we go with Project Bluebeam, in case people are not familiar. You're right. We could create with this whole, I don't know, a false flag operation to diminish religions in the world and try to send, you know, show us that alien spacecraft have arrived, and it would be a whole way to bring everybody together, but it would be kind of a contrived and organized effort in which all the information that it's coming through, it almost sounds like the balloon story in a way, Frank, right? we don't hear the truth on that, but... This is something even more bizarre, Claude, but uh, people need to look it up. I mean, just for whatever your belief system is, it's Project Bluebeam. It's kind of an interesting concept. Uh, Mm -hmm. Let's hope it's not real.
1: 800-848-9222. We're going to continue with your questions in just a moment. I have a number of questions as well. Talking with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. You can check out the podcast, The Dr. Sky Experience, for more in-depth discussion and analysis of what we're talking about. Great interviews with terrific guests and tips on what you can look for in the night sky as well. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of midnight. 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 It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
4: Magic seems to whisper and a hush, and all the soft moonlight seems to shine in your blush. Can
6: I just have one more? The great Michael play
1: singing "Moon Dance." Well, whether you like to dance uh, at the moon or just look at it, we're talking with the go-to guy on lunar exploration or anything that happens in the night sky. Steve Cates, A.K.A. Doctor Sky. Uh, you can also check out the Doctor Sky blog at ktar.com. dot com. We steal a ton of great content from there. Steve, uh, a couple of weeks yes. ago, the whole world, seemingly at least the whole continent, was a buzz with discussion of the green comet comet ZTF and uh, apparently there are still images that we're seeing uh, from this green comet including uh, some images courtesy of Artemis 1 what uh, what can you tell us about this uh, comet ZTF, the so-called green comet?
2: well first of all, thank you for the people that are listening to your show and and this segment here is a bi-weekly part of this radio show thank you but the point is, not to jump all over this. So many in the media got this wrong. Mm. As I mentioned before, I'm watching one of my local television stations one night doing some work, and they're saying, and I quote, Tonight's the night to see the green comet step outside from 1 a.m. and look up. Well, Frank, the comet was never that bright. City mm. dwellers would have almost an impossible you know, chance. I, I to looked.
1: See it. I looked yeah. as soon as I got <laughs> off air. I looked uh, in depth, and I-, I didn't have any luck.
2: Well, Frank, the crowd that we had up in Sedona doing one of these resort programs had a nice group. And after that, I said to myself, you know what, I'm going to look for the comet. The sky was clear, no moon in the sky. It took me a while to find the little tiny puff in binoculars. Then I saw it in the telescope, and I said, you know what, I'm lucky to see this thing because it won't be back for 50,000 years. But unfortunately, some of the media just do this, I, you know, not not to keep harping on it. They do a disservice when it should be really a truth story. It's like you really need a telescope or binoculars. You need super dark skies. And that's not a service. that That's doing a disservice, I think, to so many people who then they might say, imagine, ah, this stuff's no good. I can't see anything. Why bother? When the truth is you really could, if you had the conditions, they have to be told how to do it. And I'm sure many people out there do follow this.
1: 800 848 Bob is in Yonkers. Hello, Bob.
2: Frank, Doctor Doctor Scott, how are you? Good morning, Bob. I'm doing well.
5: Um, as you know, things are heating up between China and ourselves. Yes. If China, get, if China gets to the moon first, would they have a, a, an advantage over us militarily?
2: Well, they would, but the truth is, and I don't think they would follow this, and not just to attack China on this. Any nation cannot claim the moon for themselves. But if you're going to do some nefarious things like set up, you know, anti spacecraft missile system, like an ICBM system on Earth, that would be horrible. But in the spirit of trying to study all the beauty of the science world, which is why I believe Artemis 3, when we go with, you know, real astronauts, hopefully in the next five, four to five years. But no, uh, that would be a horrible thing, in my opinion. But there's something that one of the admirals here, and I, and this, I don't want to get political here, but this is Naval Intelligence Admiral State's that how blind most and naive most Americans are to the China threat. Mm. So says Rear Admiral Mike Studeman He's the commander of the Office of Naval Intelligence. He's just saying people need to wake up to the reality of what's happening out there with no hate in my heart. It's just that, you know, trust but verify, as, as President Reagan had said. It's not, you know, just words. But that's also very interesting, Bob. Uh, let's hope that cooler heads prevail, but... Who knows what could happen up there? The space warfare, that's probably why they set up the Space Force to begin with, to keep our satellites protected from future space wars like Star Wars in low Earth
1: orbit. 800 There was a story that I saw on space.com yesterday that the Hubble telescope captured some dazzling photos uh, for, of stars in the Orion Nebula. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure you've seen these photos. Aside from oh, yeah. the, the beauty of them, what's the significance of uh, of these photos and these stars, and what's happening in the Orion Nebula in general? Well, Frank, let's start off in
2: a fun way. Everybody listening, their homework assignment, if we can give out a friendly homework sure. assignment, get outside if you have dark skies look high up into the southern sky as the sun goes down like even an hour after orion's an easy constellation to see and just below the three belt stars is the sword that's where the orion nebula is but how about this it's thirteen hundred and forty-four light years away so that means the light left in the year 679 a.d it's a stellar nursery where stars are being born and it's the closest of all these stellar nurseries that we can see in the sky one edge of that little nebula, if you're looking at it as the smudge, is allegedly anywhere from 12 to 20 light years across. So even if we could travel at light speed from one side of the Orion Nebula, you would take, it would take allegedly 12 to 20 years of light speed travel. But what we're seeing with these images from Hubble, I watch the, the, the nebula pretty regularly in a telescope. Here's the challenge. If you have a telescope, folks, and you're looking at the Orion Nebula, pay close attention to one of the brighter stars in it. It's a star group called the trapezium, and I've never in my life seen something more beautiful. It's like tiny little, four little tiny stars so close together in the telescope. It's like little diamonds set into a piece of jewelry like a brooch. They call it the trapezium. And it's what lights up and illuminates the nebula. And there's stars, Frank, that are being born. But the age, get on to of this. If the sun is 4 billion years old, the Orion Nebula is allegedly only three million years old. That's
1: incredible
2: for such an object that's so beautiful and relatively far.
1: Now, let me try and get in at least one more uh call here. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two 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 Nancy is in New Jersey. Hello, Nancy.
8: Oh, hi Frank, how are you? I'm great,
6: thank um, you.
1: Good
6: morning, good. Nancy.
8: And good morning, Dr. Steve. We have spoken before about a number of subjects, and I have a question for you as sure. to alien alien civilizations here, living here on Earth. Okay. And um, you know, I'm I'm wondering, you know, we always hear about the Greys, mm-hmm. and there you know there's a lot of um, there's a lot of literature out there about about them. I don't know how much it is True sure. documentation or not doc, true documentation, but we also hear about another race, a taller, um, a taller, more aggressive race than the grays. And I wonder if there are two civilizations living here on Earth, and if there are, do they coexist? Is that coexistence peaceful? And what their what are their agendas here?
2: Well, Nancy, that's a lot to answer. I don't yeah. know. I mean, I've studied this for so long, but my best interaction was actually a friendship with Betty Hill of that famous encounter back in 1961 with her husband Barney and the aliens that she in her most well documented story were like the little grays then there's also stories about reptilian type creatures which is kind of horrific if you look at the um, what M Night Shyamalan's movie signs that movie bothered me frank i don't know sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah it was very strange especially at the ending i won't uh, be a spoiler but I don't know this. I mean, if there indeed are, many people believe that alien civilizations have been in coexisting here with humans for, for so long. But that's one of the great subjects that we study and, and try to see if we can ever come up with answers. But Nancy, not to be negative, we can't even get answers on balloons as <laughs> to what they are. So just think of how difficult it's going to be to us to even know. Why can't they just tell us that alien creatures and civilizations do exist and hopefully they come in peace.
1: Yeah, it, <laughs> that is for sure. <laughs> hey, um, there was a story I saw it in the New York Post a week or so ago. Yes. Peace of sun breaks off, stuns scientists. Uh, this was... Very, very baffling to me. They yes. claim that material actually broke off of the sun's surface and created a tornado-like swirl around its northern pole. What do we know about this, very quickly? Well, Frank,
2: I hate to jump on the hysteria side of this, but also, like we were talking about before, I think it's a little exaggerative. These are big plumes mm-hmm. of material called solar flares and CMEs. I'm not too sure where the north pole won. That would be very unusual But I think it's all in the context of what's happening with Solar Cycle 25. More energy coming out of the sun. Stay tuned because we ain't seen nothing yet with sunspots and solar flares.
1: Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. We'll talk to him again in two weeks. But if you can't wait two weeks, check out the Dr. Sky experience. Steve, it's always a treat. Thank you. Thank you so much. Until the next hour, keep reaching for the stars, but always keep your feet
0: on the ground.
1: Presidential race grew by one yesterday, and, uh, you know, I haven't really been doing play-by-play of the presidential race because, you know, I'm going to be – if we're going to do daily chronicling of what's going on in the presidential race between now and a year and a half from now, I'm going to be bored to tears because so much of what goes on in the presidential primaries and the presidential contest in general has to do with fundraising, gaffes, and, um, I don't know, just – slogans that are pretty meaningless, but I have to say I um, read in the Wall Street Journal an op-ed that's appearing in today's Wall Street Journal, uh, an op-ed by someone by the name of Vivek Ramaswamy, and he's a, a wealthy guy. He's the co-founder of Strive Asset Manager and uh, – excuse me – Strive Asset Management and the author – ...of several books, including most recently Nation of Victims, Identity Politics, The Death of Merit, and The Path Back to Excellence, and Woke Inc. Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam. And I'd read some of his writings before. I'd never read any of his books, but I found his announcement yesterday on the Fox News Channel on Tucker Carlson's program pretty fascinating. And... um, I think he's actually going to do really well in the presidential race for reasons that I'll get into in a moment. I'll read you some of the highlights from his Wall Street Journal op-ed. But I find – look, if you look at um, the candidates that are in this race already, uh, Donald Trump, Nikki Haley, and Ron DeSantis, and then the potential candidates that are looking at running, uh, John Bolton, Chris Christie, Larry Hogan, Asa Hutchinson, Christine Nome. Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, Tim Scott, Chris Sununu, Glenn Youngkin. I find I have a major problem with all of them, including Trump, who I voted for twice. But um, I love a lot of the messaging of this fellow uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. He's 37 years old, and he is running a campaign, at least based on what he told Tucker yesterday, that is unabashedly about helping America discover, rediscover, I should say, its identity. Now, I don't agree with everything that he says, um, but I love that this guy is running. And I think he is going to make the not just the Republican primary contest, assuming he runs as a Republican, but the presidential contest in general so much more interesting And so much more ideas-based. Here's a little bit of his announcement yesterday on uh, Tucker Carlson's program. We are in the
7: middle of this national identity crisis, Tucker, where we have celebrated our diversity and our differences for so long that we forgot all of the ways we're really just the same as Americans, bound by a common set of ideals that set this nation into motion 250 years ago. And that's why I'm proud to say tonight that I am running for United States president to revive those ideals in this country. Those basic rules of the road, meritocracy, the idea that you get ahead in this country, not on the color of your skin, but on the content of your character. The idea that you are allowed to speak freely. Yes, to be wrong sometimes, as long as your neighbor gets the same courtesy in return. The idea that the people who we elect to run the government, by the way, are the people who actually run the government. Basic rules of the road. These are the things that bind us together. You and I have different shades of melanin. You know what I say? So what? That's not beautiful. That is not our strength. Our diversity is meaningless if there's nothing greater that binds us together across that diversity, and the reason that i 'm running for president is to revive those ideals, and I believe deep in my bones they still exist that most Americans still believe in them, but we need to rediscover that, and the only way we can do it is by start to talking openly start talking openly again
1: i'll tell you i absolutely I absolutely love what he said uh, for the most part there. What he said when you know he's Indian and so he's got brown skin and when he says to Tucker Carlson, who's as white as can be, he says, "You and I have different shades of melanin in our skin. So what?" I find that so incredibly refreshing. Now, every time, again, nothing against her; she's an accomplished woman and she's done a lot. But every time I hear Nikki Haley speak, I, I want to gag. Right? I mean, she goes on and on. First woman to do this. Oh, oh, a child of Indian immigrants to do that. Oh, oh, great. Congratulations. Having a gender or an ethnicity is not an accomplishment. It's not a reason to vote for someone. The kind of message that I'm hearing from this guy is something that I think is very badly needed in the Republican Party in general. And at the end of their interview, and I just rewatched. The whole thing. At the end of their interview, Tucker Carlson says, uh, after going through some of his ideas and we'll mention a few, he says, what you're saying now, this is light years away from where the current Republican Party is. And Tucker's right. And in some ways, this candidacy reminds me a lot of Trump's candidacy in 2016. Now, he doesn't start with the same base. Of name recognition that uh, that Trump did but I think a lot of the appeal of Trump's candidacy in 2016 wasn't just the fact that a lot of people knew him but it was the fact that his ideas were popular and I think Trump as a person has actually in some ways become a distraction from Trumpian ideas if that makes sense now when you talk about Trump these days What do you talk about? You talk about him calling Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSanctimonious or a meatball. You talk about his insistence that the 2020 election was stolen. You talk about, um, you know, the, the things that he says about uh, Mitch McConnell's wife. You talk about uh, the many legal issues that you've got going on. You know, you're not talking about for the most part issues for the most part. And maybe this will change as the campaign unfolds. You're not really talking about issues. Also, uh, you never know what's going to happen with Trump, right? He, we got the news out of the Georgia grand jury yesterday, and uh, it certainly doesn't seem like it's going in a good direction for Trump. It looks like he spent ten millions uh, $10 million from one of his PACs on personal legal bills. And uh, not not that that's his fault necessarily, but you just never know. Especially given a man of of his age, if this candidacy is going to be able to last another two years. So I think it's important, even for people that uh, that are Trump supporters, to look at all these other candidates. And I found a lot of what this fella Ramaswamy is saying very appealing. And apparently he's looking to fill that role that idea-driven outsiders have played in presidential politics before. People like uh, Herman Cain in 2016 – in 2012. People like uh, Steve Forbes in 1996 and 2000. People like Jerry Brown in 1992. And uh, I think this is – this is great, honestly. I'm all for this. Not that I'm in line with what he's saying on everything, but I think – It's great that he's saying it. So, some of the things uh, that he lays out in his Wall Street Journal op ed is number one, ending affirmative action. And that's going to have a lot of appeal with people. Number two, abandoning what he calls climate religion. Number three, a total decoupling from China. Additionally, he writes eight-year limits for all federal bureaucrats. You know, it's difficult for me to disagree with this, right? He says the president has an eight-year term. Why should bureaucrats that actually do the work of administering and running the government be able to stay longer than the president who appointed them or who hired them? makes sense to me. And then he uh, gets into uh, one, say no to central bank digital currencies. Uh, my head just – I get dizzy every time I try to understand what's going on with digital currencies, let alone central bank digital currencies. So I'll put that one aside. I don't know if I agree or disagree with that one. And then lastly, um, release the state action files. Very interesting. What is that? What does that mean? What is state action files? He writes in this Wall Street Journal op-ed, as Elon Musk did at Twitter, I will release the state action files from the federal government publicly exposing every known instance in which bureaucrats have wrongfully pressured companies to take constitutionally prohibited actions. I'm curious what you think of his candidacy. It doesn't matter to me whether you're a Democrat, Republican, or Independent. Um, Just I'm curious, one, as an objective and now uh, analyst, how you think he's going to do, and two, if you would ever consider voting for him. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. I, look, maybe I'm naive, and my track record of political prognostications is very poor, honestly. If you go back and look at all the verifiable predictions I've made over the course of the last 13 years, I've been wrong eh, maybe 70 to 80% of the time. But that being said, I have no problem continuing to offer wrong prognostications. I think he is going to do very well. I'm not saying he's going to get elected. I'm not saying he's going to be the nominee. I think he's going to do very well for a few reasons. One, the fact that he's got his own money, that helps him get a leg up over other candidates that don't currently have an elective office or a major platform. Two, the fact that he's young, and look, I don't dig that age discrimination game that a lot of other people play play, but I'm just looking at it objectively, the fact that he's young, only 37 years old, barely eligible to run for the office in terms of age, the fact that he's young, I think, will be very welcoming to people who are of the opinion that both President Biden and President Trump are a little too old to lead the country in this day and age with all the crises that we're facing. The fact that he, even though he's all anti You know, multiculturalism for diversity's sake and anti-affirmative action. The fact that he is brown, the fact that he's Indian or of Indian descent. And the fact that so much of his message is right-leaning, he is going to be ubiquitous on conservative media for the foreseeable future, the, the fact that the Wall Street Journal op ed page ran his op ed, even though so much of the sort of right wing populist ideas kind of fly in the face of the Wall Street Journal editorial positions, that tells you a lot. Conservatives love to take minorities and put them on a pedestal in, in a place where they can say non liberal things. And I think. Vivek Ramaswamy is going to be the beneficiary of a lot of that. He is going to be on Fox like crazy. He's going to be on Newsmax like crazy. He's going to be on talk radio like crazy. He's going to be featured in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Post constantly. Because by those conservative media outlets putting this fellow up there prominently and giving him a lot of free ink and a lot of free airtime, it belies the notion that the GOP is just a party made up of crusty old white people. And they love that. They love that idea. So I think um, he's going to do very well. I'm curious what you think. 800 848 That's one 800 He gets in, you know, he mentioned in the uh, interview with Tucker Carlson yesterday that There was this Russian balloon that flew over our airspace that was spying on us. He said if that was – excuse me, the Chinese balloon. If that was a Russian balloon, we would have raised holy hell and uh, issued every sanction there is. Why aren't we doing the same thing with China? And he gets into the fact that um, our our economy is so embedded with China's economy that we can't really – and he says we have to reclaim global energy leadership by rejecting um, the demands of this, what he terms, the new climate religion that shackles the U.S. and leaves China untouched. We must achieve semiconductor self-sufficiency while vigorously protecting Taiwan. We should prohibit kids under 16 from using TikTok. We must use financial leverage to hold China accountable for spawning the COVID pandemic. We must even be willing to bar U.S. companies from expanding into China until its government abandons theft and other mercantilist tactics. And look, he gets into, and this is what I found so refreshing, he gets into in the interview with Tucker and in this Wall Street Journal op ed that this is not going to be easy. This is going to require some sacrifice. And if you're willing to make these sacrifices, it you know ends in a potentially re- reclaiming of American identity. So I like a lot of what he said. Uh, I'm not ready to you know endorse this guy or anything, but I'm, I'm I would certainly love to interview this guy and find out some more about his vision for America. I certainly find him much more engaging than uh, say Nikki Haley or most of the other candidates that I mentioned. 800 848 9222. Curious what you think about him and uh, this potential candidacy. Um, Let me begin with Peter in Harlem. Hello, Peter. Something tells me you're not going to be volunteering or contributing to Vivek's candidacy anytime soon.
9: Well, Vivek's kind of? You mean, I can't even pronounce his name. I think this is a farce. The same as I think um, Nikki Haley's a farce. You notice when new Im- the, the spawn of early immigrants come over, the first thing they do is play to the Republican uh, uh, agenda. Now, take, for example, this guy wants to do away with affirmative action. If he wasn't for affirmative action, his monkey butt wouldn't even be here. Well, you know, again, Peter, Wait, you don't no, have no, to no, call I'm, him I'm just monkey. saying, I'm making a point. The point yeah. is... White, the affirmative action program is getting a beating from the left and the right simply because the affirmative action who, was, who benefited white women the most are now in the Supreme Court trying to get the racial aspect turned over. Where are the true intellectuals in this town? The fact is that Nikki Haley, for example, criticized or used ageism to criticize Trump and Biden. Right. But yet, when he responded, I mean, excuse me, when I was that guy, I don't know. Right, Don means. Lemon. When he responded, using the same type of rhetoric, as a matter of fact, the prime could be defined in many ways. Or you understand, like the prime age for having children or whatever. I'm saying it was a ridiculous comment, but the fact is... I know I wouldn't vote for an Indian if my life depended. Oh, you wouldn't just vote that. just because they're Indian. Just you because vote. he's Indian, right? Well, isn't Pe- that just racism, Peter? No, that's uh, ethnicism. Thank well, you. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but Peter, seriously,
1: how can you rule out someone just because of their ethnic identity? No,
9: no, 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 no. I understand the that the psychology. They and China uses it also. They think you know the whites in America have become so comfortable that any time anybody of an ethnic group other than themselves says something they like to hear, they sit back and think they've accomplished something. We are in a a political mess right now. I think the people uh, on the street... I'm sorry. I I don't think that that's helped,
1: though, by you just blatantly declaring you wouldn't vote for anybody that's Indian. I mean, isn't that just blatant
9: prejudice? No, it's a, a retaliation, because I noticed that they treat... Blacks who did this, who made the struggle possible for their monkey butts to be here. Oh, please.
1: Uh, you know, sorry. I, I mean, I've indulged you a lot, but you you want to recall uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who is a wildly successful business person. And by the way, you want to you want to say that uh, but for affirmative action, his monkey butt, as you say, wouldn't even be here. It, that's blatantly inaccurate. His father was uh, a graduate from a regional engineering college and worked for GE. His mother was a geriatric psychiatrist. I'm not sure how they benefited from affirmative action. And to me, once you immediately declare, I'm not going to vote for someone because they're black or they're Jewish or they're Indian or they're white or whatever, you immediately lose credibility with me. And, I mean, it shows you to be – the kind of racist that you've sounded like on the radio for so many years. So uh, shame on you, quite honestly. I mean, it's disgusting that, um, you know, that you would uh, not only hold such beliefs – but have no qualms about sharing them on uh, a radio station and a radio network that's as as popular as this one. I mean, the fact that you're proud and that you would say that, it's just, it's absolutely disgusting. But I'm glad you say it because people, so people know that there are racists like you out there. Frank is in Florida.
6: Hello, Frank.
3: Hey, how are you? Yeah, listen, I listened to uh, Vivek. I was very, very impressed with him. But I don't believe he can be president. But I think he is great for being a vice presidential candidate, along with one of the uh, the name people like Trump or DeSantis. So I, I see him as a very bright spot in the Republican Party because I just like what he said. I don't care about anything else. <laughs> I vote any color, any race, any religion, but I liked his message and. Uh, while I can't vote for him because I'm I'm committed to uh, Trump myself at this moment, I think if Trump ever picked him up as a uh, as a running mate, I think he would. I think they would have a, a field day against yeah, well, any Democrat.
1: Uh, look, I, I could uh, I could certainly see the appeal. You know, he is worth they say between five and six hundred million dollars, right? So. Even if you just take, even if he were to just take $100 million, right, That does. that's not enough to fund a full presidential campaign. But it's enough to get you started. It's enough to build out a campaign apparatus. It's enough to make some early and important staff hires. It's enough to set up uh, infrastructure in early primary states like New Hampshire and Iowa. Iowa still first for the Republicans. And uh, I don't think that's something to be underestimated. And I think... People are underestimating this fellow at uh, at their own peril. And as I said, with Trump, because of his age, because of his legal issues, you never know what's going to happen, right? There's no guarantee that he will be in this race a year from now. I, I certainly hope that he is, but um, there's no guarantee that that's the case. 800-848-9222. By the way, coming up in uh, about five minutes, very very excited to talk with Grime Rendell he is an aviation historian and the author of UFOs Before Roswell. We're going to get into more of this issue of uh, our government shooting down these UFOs out of the sky, even though they can't tell us what they are, and that they've suspended actually looking for them, which I find Pretty bizarre, to be candid. All right. Uh, And you can find me on Twitter as well, at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. We're also on Facebook, at facebook.com slash Morano fan. But I'll tell you, I am looking at the the list of Republican candidates. I I would have a very tough time voting for any of them. And uh, I really feel like people like me, who believe that America stands for something— that America is not just uh, a market. It actually, it, it as Teddy Roosevelt and others and Trump in 2016 talked about, should mean something. And American ideals should mean something. I think this is going to be very appealing. Now, again, this is just a bas- basically one day as a candidate. We don't necessarily know where he is on trade. We don't know how he would handle this foreign policy th- aspect or that foreign policy aspect. We don't know how he'd handle the Middle East. There's a lot to delve into with him. But I really think that um, a lot of what he says is potentially very appealing. 800-848-9222. Uh, you know, let me take a break, and we'll talk with Grime Randall in uh, just a minute. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
7: Springsteen
1: singing Born to Run. Uh, this is a birthday bumper music selection from my friend Mike Cusick who uh, was, was an assemblyman for 24 years a close friend of mine long before he held elective office and uh, now is uh, doing very well as the head of the SIEDC. He's doing great. Now um, in terms of where we're going with shooting these UFOs ...out of the sky, which the government still either cannot or will not tell us what they are, it has developed a whole new interest in the field of UFOs or UAPs with people looking at the reports that the Director of National Intelligence has already issued with renewed interest and wanting more information, wanting more more information about what we already know and a better handling of these sort of situations going forward. Well, Grime Rendell is a really great intellect on this subject. He's an aviation historian, a podcaster, and the author of UFOs Before Roswell. Grime, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for joining me on the radio.
10: Morning, Frank. Yeah, it's uh, early in the morning in the UK, but I'm happy to to come on and and speak with you. Thanks very much for the invitation.
1: So give folks a little bit of an idea uh, about your background, because a lot of the people that write about UFOs or Roswell— they view them almost as a, a step removed from science fiction, whereas uh, folks that, are, that deal with aviation history, conventional aviation history, they have a little bit more credibility with skeptics and, and naysayers. Tell me, uh, tell me about your history with, uh, with studying aviation and how that's doveto- dovetailed into studying UAPs or UFOs.
10: Yeah, well, I was certainly an aviation enthusiast from an early age. I used to build model aircraft kits when, from about four years old. And um, looking at the instructions on, on the kits, you, you would get a little potted history of the aircraft themselves and that developed into it into a, um, an all-consuming sort of passion for everything to do with aircraft but particularly the Second World War. Um, I got a bit older I started reading science fiction as a lot of people do um, and my mother bought me a book which, which she thought was science fiction but it turned out to be a book on UFOs and this was about when I was nine or so so it developed from there and I, I, at that age I was a bit like a sponge if you like and you know soaking, soaking up all this information um, and of course when it came to, to learning about the food fighters of World War II, the the strange lights that followed um, United States Army Air Force, uh, night fighters around Western Europe and across the Pacific, then those kind of three, you know, those three things, the the wartime, um, the aircraft and the UFOs all collided. They all came together. And then when I was able to, much later on, I wrote a book, as you mentioned, UFOs Before Roswell, which deals with the European side of the Foo Fighter phenomenon during World War II. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a look at it through an aviation kind of enthusiasm and historian's perspective, but also for somebody who was interested in UFOs and somebody who was interested in wartime technology. So they all came together.
1: What did the uh, 2017, December 2017, front page New York Times story on the uh, so-called Nimitz encounter, where we actually got to see, uh, covered by a major media publication, these, these objects in real time, what did that do in terms of your interest?
10: Well, for like a lot of people, um, it's almost the UFO equivalent of you know where were you when JFK was assassinated? Right. It was one of those kind of it was one of those kind of landmark you know sort of dates where everybody just thinks wow, and it was kind of like one of those heart stopping moments where you, you you were trying to look at yourself, dude. Have I just read that? has that really just appeared in, in a landmark publication such as the New York Times? And then by also, it wasn't just like just a story. It had some you know, fairly heavyweight kind of reporters behind it. So it wasn't just some flimsy flimsy tale. You know, they'd done their homework. They'd actually looked into it, and they weren't prepared to publish it or get an editor to publish it without it being you know, sort of you know, some, a lot of truth behind it. And then, of course, the videos that came out that had been released the uh, you know, Accompanying the story, they were just kind of, you know, they 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 you know took your breath away as well because we hadn't really seen anything like that beforehand. We're still trying to work out what those things are.
1: In terms of obviously, you wrote a, a terrific uh, piece about about Roswell uh, with uh, with your book UFOs before Roswell. In terms of the Roswell incident in itself. What's your best analysis of what occurred there?
10: And if something happened. I mean, that's really, you know, as much as people at the moment seem to be able to prove. Now, where you go from there it depends on who you speak to, which witnesses you sort of you know believe implicitly, which ones you don't. And unfortunately, it's so long ago now that it's very, very difficult to get to the bottom of it. And any kind of truth that you know was there Is now died with the witnesses because pretty much everybody involved with Mm. the actual event has now passed away, unfortunately, due to the passage of time. And unfortunately, there's also been a lot of people who have come forward to try and insert themselves into the story somehow. And it turns out that when you look at them much more deeply, then their part in it is either, you know, kind of um, forged or, you know, they're trying to say things which didn't actually happen, um, or they're just muddying the waters. So it's a bit of a mess, really, I'm afraid, nowadays. And actually... It's something I don't really look at because I'll leave that to other people because there are other people much more qualified and much more close to it than I am who have looked into Roswell, um, you know, and there's still no really further forward and, you know, finding out what they are, what, what happened then. They have ideas, they have theories, but really trying to prove it 100% that everybody would be satisfied with that explanation. I think that's we're not there yet. My my UFOs before Roswell book was actually looking at the Foo Fighters. So it's basically set just before the events of Roswell. So you're looking during the Second World War. Um, And obviously people use... Kenneth Arnold's UFO sighting from June 47, which was two weeks before Roswell, they use that as the kind of birth of modern UFO, uh, the UFO phenomenon. Whereas I look a little bit further back just to say, well, actually, these things were sort of happening, you know, a few years beforehand, and people haven't really taken that as seriously as maybe they should.
1: Give, give us briefly an idea of how prevalent UFO sightings were pre-Roswell.
10: Okay. So if we just take the Second World War for instance, the the Royal Air Force and this is even before the Americans entered the war, so in nineteen forty, the Royal Air Force were looking at strange things, lights that were following their bombers over Germany. And there's reports in the intelligence files which I'm still going through and I'm still trying to make sense of it all. And they, they simply couldn't get a handle on it. And they did analysis after analysis, month after month, right until 1942. And they were still none the wiser as to what these things were and why they were following the bombers. There's a case from March 42 of a Polish aircraft that was, fo- was followed by an orange disc. The the gunners and the aircraft fired at it and nothing happened. It flew around to the front yeah. of the aircraft and they were still firing at it and then it flew off into the distance. Now people might say that 's some kind of German secret weapon, but unfortunately, if you look at all the types of German secret weapons that they had and even the things that were on the drawing board that they never got off the ground, nothing fits and There were similar stories throughout the war, and if you look at the, the, um, if you go into the documents of the squadrons which i 've done, uh, particularly for the research for the book, you 'll see instances of strange lights, rocket, um, things that are described as rockets, but long before the, the Germans were actually experimenting with rockets. Uh, and then things that go even further, as, as such as very strange-looking um, aircraft designs, again which which don't exist, uh, and just a whole whole sort of list of things which simply don't fit. Uh, any kind of German technology from the war. And then, of course, the Americans came into the war. They were seeing things through the daytime. Then you get into about November, uh, sort of October, November 1944. Then night fighters over the the Western Front were, were, were finding lights following them and didn't matter what they do to try and shake them off their tail, they were still sitting there. And there are similar stories from the Pacific Theatre as well. Those B 29s being followed by what they called balls of fire. So there's a whole, you know, there's a whole raft of stories from World War Two which haven't really been gone into in, in any great depth wow. beyond my book and a few others. Um, but um, you know, I tried to cover the European side of it very comprehensively because I've had access to the, the Royal Air Force wow. uh,
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to checking out the book. We're talking with Grime Thank Rendell. You. Uh, he's the author of uh, UFOs Before Roswell. All right, uh, let's go to the present day. We've seen these three objects that the U.S. shot down after the Chinese spy balloon and we don't know what they are. Government won't tell us what they are. No. If they know, uh, they've said they're not Chinese. They probably, that not probably, they've said they were not a threat and they were not extraterrestrial. I'm not sure how they can rule out all three of those things without any information as to what these objects are. What's your take on these objects in general and the U.S. government's handling of these three objects, Crime?
10: Okay, so they had they had a problem with the first one, the Chinese spy balloon, which we've seen the image of, and it was only apparently because of some reporter out in the Midwest who had some high high gain kind of optics and managed to get a picture of it, and obviously that went through social media and they realised they had a problem. They uh, they did shoot it down eventually, but they had a kind of this the, you know this decision as to make as to whether they would shoot it down over open country and whether it caused. Um, casualties on the ground or damage on the ground so eventually they eventually wait until it went off the north carolina co- coast that's the kind of first problem there's an intelligence failure there, there's a military failure there and i'm sure there was egg on faces of senior officers they then open up the radar i feel like they, they they widen the filter and then as soon as they do that effectively they're searching for more for more targets and of course they're going to find them because if you open the radar's parameters it will find more targets and now they're suddenly confronted with a whole load of things which they don't know they don't know what they are but they're coming over America and they'll they'll find these ones which they manage to intercept the 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 three that you've mentioned and the decision was taken to shoot them down because it's one of these, I suppose, it sounds like a bit of a knee-jerk reaction as to, yeah, we've got to do something about this. And yes, OK, they might well be, as has as been mentioned by various spokespeople um, from the White House, the Department of Defense, et cetera, that they're hobbyist balloons or they somebody's weather balloon that went adrift or, or something, you know, something mundane but not Chinese or not Russian um so i can see embarrassment there as well and that would be a you know one good reason for them not to release the information but if they wrap it all with national security and um they may say you know eventually that they can't release the information because it's wrapped up with the kind of sensor technology that the aircraft that have gone up to in- intercept them use to try and identify what they are and that's a, al- already a reason why um they they don't release the kind of UAP footage or the UFO footage from previous years, say, from last decade, because the U.S. Navy have been coming across very strange objects off the west and east coast of America, you know, or apparently almost on a daily basis. Um, and there must be footage from, from their airplanes as well, from the various, you know, sophisticated sensor technology they have, the infrared cameras and other equipment. Um, now, these aircraft that have gone up to shoot these so-called balloons down, they have the same kind of kind of gear on board. And that will be the classified you know, stuff. They won't want to release that kind of footage because of defense concerns, the national, uh, national security concerns. So they may well have pretty good information as to what, you know, or good kind of imagery to work out what these, um, these things are and maybe some other types of sensor data as well. But um, I bet they won't want to release it. And it'll either because it's wrapped up in national security or because these are fairly mundane things, which they've shot down, let's say a $12 hobbyist balloon with a $400,000 binder missile. You know, how, what does that look like? So uh, yeah, you know, there'll be various reasons why they're, they're being cagey about it. Let's say
1: last year, you wrote a column in the sun saying we've seen UFOs for 75 years. Pilots have died chasing them. We are powerless to stop them and need answers. Now, how do these three objects that were shot down after the Chinese spy balloon compare with the UFOs or flying saucer sightings that, uh, that people have been seeing for three quarters of a century? Uh, it, is it the same type of object or is it something very different?
10: We don't know is, is the is the honest answer to that, Frank, because we live in, I suppose, what we call a low information zone. We're, we're hamstrung by the lack of information that we have, certainly civilians. The military may have more information to do with sightings, for the reasons which I've already outlined just earlier there. But there's, if you go back through the history of UFO sightings and you look at the official reporting, which I've done for the other two books I've written, uh, Dawn of the Flying Saucers and Flying of Fever, which look at aerial encounters with UFOs during the late 40s and the early 1950s. And even after that, you have you know, report after report where pilots and aircrew and passengers see strange things. These are reported up the chain of command. And then there's usually some kind of investigation from the official programs that did such a thing back then. And what they do is, you know, they, there was all, almost a kind of a case of let's just write it off as something. So they'd write it off as a, a weather balloon or some other mundane object. And you can look at the, the kind of investigations that were done and where they looked for this information to try and justify the decisions. Now, in some cases, yeah, it's, it's a straight up, yeah, that's what they are, because it's fairly obvious. But in quite a lot of cases, you can't, you know, draw a line from what's, Contained in the sighting report and how they're described through to the eventual kind of evaluation as it's a weather balloon or it was just another aircraft or it was a flock of birds or, or whatever the, the, the case would be. And, and you can't get there. Now, mentioned, you mentioned before about aircrew who have died. There is certainly at least you know, one person that was, um, that there was a, a pilot died in the late 1940s. And the official explanation was originally that he was chasing Venus. And then it was changed, it was also right. changed to a weather balloon. So, you know, that was Thomas Mantel. So he was he was ordered to fly, to investigate um, a, a suspected UFO sighting that had been seen all over Kentucky um, at a particular day, and that they went after it. and He was the last person to climb up after this thing. His uh, he, squadron mates so had to fly. Um, had had to abandon the chase because one was suffering from um, um he didn't have enough oxygen sort of thing so and they they thought that he might have, himself might have blacked out because he flew too high um, and that might be the case, but it might not be as well it's very It's very strange when you look at the the background to that case and you look at the the official reporting. Some, some of it doesn 't quite add up, and then the, the the explanation that it was a secret type of weather balloon um, sorry high altitude balloon experiment called skyhook um, the, the 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 rationale behind that falls down because the place where they reckon it might have been launched from they weren't using that at the time. so the, you know there's all these kind of things when you look at the stories more in depth they don't quite add up to the official evaluations. And, of course, that trend just continued through the 50s and then through the 60s. And the official investigations ended in the 1960s, but the sightings continue. And now, of course, we have them in the modern day. We're now starting again with official UFO investigation bodies, such as ARO in the United States, um, but are we just going to go through the same thing again? Or are they just going to simply write, you know, write them off as, as balloons? These three things might well be you know, quite mundane, and they probably are. But at least it gets the conversation going, and it gets the, the the idea of you need more information to investigate UFOs rather than less. And that that's the most important takeaway from this whole sorry saga.
1: Well, one of the things – and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Grime Rendal, He's written several books – including uh, UFOs before Roswell. One of the things that a bunch of callers have asked me, and I've asked several guests, and uh, so far I haven't really gotten any sort of a satisfactory answer, and I certainly don't have one to give, is don't the gun cameras on on the fighter jets that shot down these objects have footage or images of what these objects were? And if they do, why has that not been released yet?
10: Well, yeah, and this is going back to, to the, you know, the previous the conversation we're having. Um, they probably do have that footage. They have targeting pods and targeting sensors. Uh, the F-16s carry them. The F-22s will carry them. And this is a kind of a, a modern thing. So you find out what you're shooting at. And they have this you know infrared technology, and they have other types of technology as well. So, yes, that information will exist. But then the question is, why aren't they releasing it? And, again, it'll come down to you know, it's national security. We don't want to give the capabilities of our targeting sensors mm. away to people who sure. might be able to look at it, you know, look at imagery and say, oh yeah, and they might be able to work out around it. There may not be kind of, you know, facts and figures on the actual image, but somebody else, it's information that they're releasing much that they probably think they don't need to um, because it's just, you know, giving an open goal to, to a potential adversary. Now I can understand that argument. But that's probably one reason. And the other reason is, what I said before, there's a potential embarrassment factor here as to whether, you know, they, they show a Batman balloon, a party balloon, let's say, you know. Right. No, I understand that, sure. That's shot down. So therefore, you know, why, why would they you know, bring on this kind of, you know, pressure from, and you can imagine the kind of the circus that would be at a a press conference if they show a picture of something fairly mundane, like a hobbyist balloon that's been shot down by a multi-million dollar, sorry, multi-thousand dollar missile. And then the kind of questions that they will get afterwards. So, yeah, I can understand both sides of that.
1: As someone that studied this for, uh, meaning UFOs being spotted for the last, you know, better part of the 20th century, at least 75 years, there's always a lot of folks that believe that these craft might be extraterrestrial in nature. What does your research suggest about that possibility?
10: It, it remains a possibility. I mean, I'm not going to sort of like pop the head on the block and say that's definitely what they are because I'm not that kind of person. But it's it still remains a mystery in so much as we don't have enough information. So there's various theories as to what you know is occurring. They. Are they, in, are they extraterrestrials? Are they what they call ultra-terrestrials, which is some kind of other race which lives among us, which we're not entirely aware of? You know, do they live under the water? Do they live in some other kind of realm that we're not, you know, we can't see ourselves? Are they time travelers from the future? Are they yeah. us coming back? Yeah, and to have a look at this, you know, if I was somebody who, who you know could take advantage of time travel, I'd be looking at the Second World War to find out what happened then, because that's my, one of my you know fields of interest. So I can understand why, you know, if that was a thing, and I'm not saying it is, but if it was, then people would come back and look at maybe, you know, the flashpoints of, of the 20th century or the 21st century to find out what's going on, you know, as a history project, let's say. So that, that's conceivable, I guess. Um, but the other thing is that, you know, again, they're, they're mundane objects or some natural phenomenon that we're simply not aware of at this time. So there's a whole range of things there. And really, at the moment, because we are living in this kind of low information zone, we don't have enough information. We don't have enough understanding mm-hmm. of the issue, never mind any kind of way of saying this is definitely what it is. And the people who come along and say, this is definitely the answer, I know everything, or I've been told, you have to take that with a pinch of salt, I'm afraid, because if that had been the case, then we'd all know by now.
1: Grime Randall, a uh, fascinating conversation. I appreciate the the conversation very much. I hope we could talk again soon.
10: Yeah, cheers, Frank. Thanks very much for inviting me.
1: Thank you. You could check out his book or any of any of his books but including UFOs before Roswell they're available on Amazon and most other places that books are sold. We'll take your calls in a moment 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano straight ahead.
0: The other side of midnight. 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 It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
1: This is uh, Sure Shot by the Beastie Boys. I'll tell you, Mike Cusick, when he created his birthday bumper music playlist, was concerned that it might have been too 80s and 90s centric. Eh, you know, who doesn't like 80s music? 90s music is a different ballgame. game. 848 That's one 800 Some good news. A uh, follow-up to a story that we've been telling you about. So two days ago, my son got a, got a control of the remote control, and he used it to purchase the Major League Soccer package on Apple TV at $80. Now, we immediately canceled, and uh, they basically said, okay, well, that means it won't renew, but you still get it for the year. And so a bunch of folks wrote to me and said, no, you got to find a way to – contest this. And some people suggested writing to Apple. Some people suggested disputing the charges with the credit card company. And look, you know, we're not in a position right now to just be throwing away $80 willy-nilly. So we um, we said, let's reach out to Apple and if we can't get any, make any headway through that, then we will dispute the charges with our credit card company. Fine. So, lo and behold, it, because if you think about it, if you're going to spend $80 on something, you should have to enter a password or a PIN or something so that they know that this is authorized. How do you know it's not just a cat stepping on the remote control, or in our case, a one-year-old? So, a uh, thankfully, the Apple folks did agree to refund us the $80 that uh, that Carmine spent uh, on the Major League Soccer package. And now we'll never know what we missed by not, uh, by not having that uh, Major League Soccer package. But that's okay. Much rather have that $80. Now, uh, you, you know, Carmine has gotten in the habit of the la- over the last few days. He's very good at walking walking all over the place. The only time he really crawls anywhere is when he crawls up our steps. That's one of his favorite recreational activities. He likes to crawl up the steps. But he's gotten into the habit the last few days of just randomly throwing himself on the floor. And it's very... He does it... Sometimes he does it out of frustration. Sometimes I actually think he does it for comedic value. But it almost looks like he is tripping um and his babysitter thought that he tripped but he did the same thing when my mom was over yesterday he's doing it intentionally he's intentionally throwing himself onto the ground and uh, i'm not sure what the why he's doing that but he's doing that that's the latest with him one of the other things that he has been enjoying is he he any kind of once he gets access to his socks he pulls his sock off, right? So if he is not wearing shoes, obviously he can't get to the sock if he's got shoes on. But if he's not wearing shoes, he gets to those socks and rips them off. And um, that means basically a lot of the time he has at least one bare foot, sometimes two bare feet. And not only is it potentially concerned for getting cold, but it's the potential of a concern for losing these socks, Because he's throwing them everywhere. So my wife saw, and I don't know if somebody referred this to her or if she discovered this on her own. She saw these uh, socks on the TV show Shark Tank, which they call uh, squid socks, which don't come off easily. They don't roll off easily. You have to really try to roll them off So we put these squid socks on him. We tried it twice. And the same thing happened both times, which is these socks left an indentation on my son's, you know, the area right above his foot, his lower shin. And so my wife and I both said the same thing. You know, this can't be comfortable for him wearing these socks that are so tight that they're leaving an indentation. I mean, I've had that sometimes where I wear socks that leave an indentation. And, uh, you know, we don't want these socks cutting off his circulation or anything. So now we have all these squid socks that we purchased that we're going to see if we can maybe get a refund on those. And if not, oh, we got a refund, actually. And they don't want them back. They don't want us to send them back. So now we have all these squid socks. And I don't know if we should throw them away or donate them to someone. I do know several other people with Babies that are Carmine's age because they're supposedly for a size. You got Arthur Idala's daughter, you got Andrew Giuliani's daughter, uh, my friend, um, you know, my friend uh, Rich Hoffman and his wife uh, Danielle. They have a son Valentine. But I don't know if it's appropriate for me to foist these socks on another one year old when they're probably going to do the same thing to that child's feet as they do to my son's. So that's kind of what we're wrestling through. But Rachel is fastidious with the need for getting rid of this stuff. So we have to make a decision soon. If you're a one-year-old and you want these socks, email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Next hour, we'll get into George Washington. Keep asking questions.
0: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
1: This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. All right. Uh, this is a big week in terms of the Supreme Court and big tech. Yesterday, the Supreme Court heard arguments in the case of Gonzalez versus Google. And today, justices will hear arguments in the case of Twitter versus Tamne, I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly, but I may not. The two cases are, of course, obviously different, but Section 230 lies at the heart of them. The challenges to the law, which offers broad te- protections to technology giants when it comes to liability for user-generated content, could have far-reaching consequences for the Internet and how it operates. So, if I know some of you don't necessarily follow the inner workings of the Supreme Court or big tech, and certainly when these two areas get together, it can be a little bit uh, difficult to follow. Let me explain this as simply as I as as I understand it. So the the if I, if there's a radio station, right, and I say something defamator, defamatory about someone. And um, they can sue the radio station. Simple as that. Right? The radio station can be held accountable for anything I say. Same thing if uh, a a television commentator, if uh, Sean Hannity goes on Fox News and says something wildly uh, defamatory about someone, they can sue Fox News. Same thing in the New York Times. uh, In print, if... uh, uh, you know take whoever your favorite New York Times columnist is, Paul Krugman says something defamatory and that's printed in the New York Times The New York Times can be sued. However, if those same people Paul Krugman, Sean Hannity, Frank Morano go on Facebook or Twitter and say something defamatory on those platforms, those platforms cannot be sued. They enjoy this Section 230 protection. Now, why is it called Section 230? That's a section of the Title 47. uh, That's a section of the the U.S. Code that was enacted as part of the Telecommunications Act in 1996. And it provides immunity for website platforms with respect to third-party content. So if I go on Facebook and say something defamatory against someone... If uh, it causes them undue harm or whatever the case may be, Facebook can't be sued. Potentially, Frank Morano can be sued, but not Facebook. Okay, I hope that's clear. So now the Supreme Court is weighing these two cases. And in the case yesterday, in the case of Gonzalez, the plaintiffs have argued that Section 230 protections should not extend to the algorithm that YouTube uses to sort content. The plaintiffs contend that the algorithm violated the Anti-Terrorism Act by promoting ISIS videos through its recommendation engine. But Google, who owns YouTube, they hit back and they say that it's critical that Section 230 protect these algorithmic rankings. The lawyer for Google, Lisa Blatt noted that all publishing requires organization and that helping users find the proverbial needle in the haystack is an existential necessity on the Internet. Exposing websites to liability for implicitly recommending third-party context defies the text and threatens today's Internet. The justices on Tuesday also appeared hesitant to restrict the legal shield that has shaped the Internet as we know it. And by the way, this was across ideological lines. This was not one of those issues where the Repub- the conservatives are on one side, the liberals were on another. Lawsuits will be nonstop, Justice Kavanaugh said. You're creating a world of lawsuits, said Justice Kagan. Now, the attorney representing the plaintiffs attempted to downplay the ramifications a ruling might have. The implications are limited, uh, that's what the they kept saying to the justices. I want to give you my take on this from a public policy perspective as it relates to Section 230. And I want to give you my take as a public policy r- perspective with respect to the courts even ruling on this. But first, Alan Dershowitz was on the Katz and Cosby show last night talking about The Supreme Court hearing these two cases and what the implications of these two cases would be. Obviously, Alan Dershowitz was a professor at Harvard for 50 years, probably the most quoted legal scholar over the last 75 years. Here was Alan Dershowitz.
5: I don't think they're going to ultimately decide the 230 uh, issue. It's a bad case factually. Um, uh, you know, the, the the argument that's being made by the plaintiff is not a particularly strong one against Google, and I think they can probably decide the case without having to reach that issue. They may reach out and try to decide. No, they're not going to abolish 230. It's not unconstitutional, but they might limit it in some way, and 230 is too broad. Uh, you know, it was set up because – Companies like Google are platforms, and they can't control what's on them, so they can't be held well, well, liable for defamation. Excuse but me, excuse if me. If they don't take them down, then they can be held liable for defamation. So I think we're going to see some changes.
1: Now, so the Supreme, the Supreme Court is going to decide two complicated cases this week involving the Internet, terrorism, free speech, and public safety. And as far as I'm concerned, there's only one right answer. Send it all, all of it, back to Congress and see what Congress wants to do. These are not issues for lawyers and judges. A lot happened at the Supreme Court yesterday involving the Internet and all these uh, other issues. It should have happened in Congress. Congress should be debating this law Tweaking Section 230 if it wants to, this should not be an issue for the Supreme Court. So let's look at Section 230. I know a lot, of, um, a lot of people are all about repealing Section 230 or things of that nature. My fear, and look, I'm no defender of the big tech companies at all, but my fear is that if Section 230 is repealed and Twitter and Facebook and YouTube can actually be sued, not for something that they're publishing, but for user-generated content. My fear is that these social media companies are going to become so leery of the dangers of a lawsuit that they're going to clamp down even more on free speech. And I think they're going to restrict even more the content that people could put out there. So I don't think that that's a good thing at all to repeal Section 230. I, I'm not sure what the solution is. I think it could be tweaked, but I think that's a tweak that should be done by Congress, the legislative branch that wrote the law in the first place, not the Supreme Court. And I don't think that's a liberal or conservative argument. That's simply, that's my take on it. 800 That's 800 Al is uh, in Manhattan. Hello, Al.
11: Good morrow. How are you? Good! Listen, I wanted to say, first of all, apologies for yesterday. That was beyond my uh, control, atmospheric condition, solar flare with the green comet and a balloon. So that was why the ComStat signal from ABC was disrupted for that moment. It was deja vu and the buzella. But as far as taking care of uh, carmine socks, all we have to do is you take four little cuts on top of the scissor and that'll relieve the tension, and the socks are good to go. No worries.
1: Oh, well, so just take four, um, four incisions. You cut
11: a, a quarter-inch diabetics to this all the time. You just cut with the scissor four equidistant uh, slices, and it's going to relieve the tension, and you can wear them, no problems. But you don't want to go too far because then they'll come and they'll hang down, you know? Okay,
1: well, hey, that's actually good advice. I will try that. Thank you, Al. 800-848-9222. Ah, uh, by the way, just on the um on the subject of what I call judicial supremacy, there was a really interesting article. It's a lengthy article uh, in The New Yorker about a lawyer. happens to be conservative, but he could just as easily be a a liberal. a lawyer, an activist lawyer who is trying to take on this whole doctrine of judicial supremacy. It's a fascinating article. It's a long read. Uh, but if you have time after the show and you're interested in delving into this, I just link to it on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano fans from the New Yorker. It's called the conservative who wants to bring down the Supreme Court. But I have to warn you, this is not a five minute read. This is. This is a good 15 to 20 minutes. I mean, this is a lengthy, maybe not that long, but it's a lengthy read. It's very in-depth, but it's chock full of information. I loved it. Uh, Hey, in a minute, we're going to talk with uh, one of the best authors on the subject of George Washington, David O. Stewart. He's a best-selling author whose books include George Washington, The Political Rise of America's Founding Father. And today is George Washington's birthday. So we're going to get into some aspects of George Washington's life and career that you may not be familiar with. But first, let me say hello to Steve on Long Island, who's been patiently holding. Hello, Steve. Oh,
11: if I can go back to the balloons, do you mind if I go back to the balloons? Go back to wherever you like, Steve. Uh, okay. All right. First of all, good evening. And if I was up at this hour more often, I listen to your show all the time. Oh, well, thanks. But uh, I'm, I'm making some late night deliveries here. My theory on the balloons is if you're familiar with um Munchausen syndrome you're familiar with that yeah
1: uh, of course okay. I'm, I'm familiar
11: and you're familiar with firefighter uh firefighter arson right have you ever heard that concept yes. okay I think that what happened is that the Biden administration with regards to these three mystery uh, balloons where there's no footage and no uh urgency to uh, uh, retrieve them. I think these were nothing more than a ploy by this deceptive administration to try to help Biden save face on letting the, the real balloon uh, uh, you know, skate across the country for eight days and they didn't shoot it down. So the government decided, you know, we'll just let these three uh, innocuous balloons uh, drift into the sky and uh, if they even did it, And we'll just shoot him down. I think this is nothing more than a stunt by this administration to help Biden save face. Uh, Because there's no, um, uh, 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 the media has asked for footage of these. And like you alluded to, these uh, fighter jets uh, have cameras. And the footage should be readily available for dissemination. Um, there's no urgency to retrieve the balloons. In the meantime, they sent out a small army to get this this Chinese spy balloon. So just the idea that there's been no uh, affirmative uh, action taken to try to get these balloons, I think it was all stunt. And, again, I liken it to firefighter arson or Munchausen syndrome, where they just did it to bring attention to Biden's uh, savviness uh, about protecting the American uh, uh, airspace, and right, but, uh, uh, I, I, that's uh,
1: it. Two quick questions, Steve, and I'd, I think it's an interesting theory, and I don't have a lot of time here because we're getting to uh, David O. And Stewart. But spe- one, and if-
11: also, let me interject, they don't mind spending money to pull off a stunt uh, like all that.
1: All right, Steve, I, I, I have to run. I'm sorry we, we can't continue the conversation. All right, we're going to talk with Dave O. Stewart in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. It's George Washington's birthday. We'll talk about him in a moment.
0: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
1: This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, today is George Washington's birthday. Yes, that's right. The actual date, not the Monday before it or the Monday after the weekend or anything like that. Today is the day of... George Washington's birthday. George Washington, as our first president, as the general who led American forces during the Revolutionary War, has achieved almost a mythic status in American history. There have been probably tens of thousands, maybe more, of books written about him. He's been a a character in everything from movies, television shows, even comic books. But when it comes to actually getting to know the truth about George Washington, his history and the facts, I was eager to do a deep dive into George Washington's life as a politician, as a military leader, as a man, and I wanted to try and find something new. So I researched far and wide, and I reached out to a lot of friends of mine who are scholars when it comes to presidential biographies, and repeatedly the book that I found on the list of best Washington biographies, and the book that was recommended to me by friends who study this stuff, was George Washington: The Political Rise of America's Founding Father. And I'm just thrilled that David O. Stewart, a best-selling author of history and historical novels, who uh, who actually wrote that book, George Washington: The Political Rise of America's Founding Father, has agreed to join me. David, it's great to talk with you. Thank you.
12: Well, thanks so much for having me on the show.
1: So, David, when we talk about a lot of figures that are well known in American history, Obviously, there's a lot of folklore that involves certain mythic figures, especially the far back you go, the more folklore there is. Sometimes that leads to historical figures, especially presidents, being a little overrated. Sometimes it leads to them being a little underrated. Uh, George Washington, was he really so great? (laughs)
12: Uh, It's a a fair question. Uh, We don't have much sense of him you know he was born 291 years ago uh it it's a long time and you know we don't have the ways of remembering him through film or even audio tape that we have for uh so many others so or even photographs so he's not immediate um he also was sort of a a a buttoned up Personality in many instances. So, with friends, he would unwind, but not in public. So, he's not an easy guy to get to know. But the fact is, without him, there might very likely not be a United States. And he was so pivotal and he so dominated our public life for the first 20 years. Um, I, I just can't say there's anybody more important.
1: Now, I think a lot of people, even people that have just the the most mediocre knowledge of American history, know that he was the first president and they know that he led uh, the United States military during the Revolutionary War. Before that, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of conjecture, a lot of curiosity about what his life was like. Aside from uh, chopping down cherry trees like crazy and telling the truth about it, what was he actually doing with his life before the Revolutionary War?
12: As a very young man, uh, he became very uh, engaged with what was then the frontier, Western Virginia and Western Pennsylvania. And uh, was as a surveyor, then as a sort of public figure, and ultimately as a, as a soldier during the French and Indian War, again, as a very young man. Uh, that didn't all end very well. Uh, his military experience during the French and Indian War uh, w- was to have to fight Indians in the woods, and the Indians were a lot better at it than the Virginians were that he was leading. It was very frustrating, and he ended up leaving the military and not having draped himself in uh, glory. As then, he gets married, and about 27, 28, he remakes himself he uh, inherits Mount Vernon, the wonderful estate we all associate with him on the Potomac River. He decides he's going to make it as a, a, a farmer and does okay at that, not great. But he also goes into politics, and we don't think of him as a politician, but he was actually a working politician for most of his uh, adult life and a very good one. And that was what I wanted to unpack. And I think he had this remarkable uh, apprenticeship in local government and colonial affairs for longer than he ever was a soldier where he learned how to be an effective politician, how to lead, and how to forge consensus. Uh, and that those were the skills he was able to use – and to make the united states frankly
1: and for the record that story about the chopping down of the cherry tree that wasn't accurate right not
12: at all yeah. um, <laughs> no, the, nor did he throw a silver dollar over the potomac <laughs> um it,
1: i really enjoyed the aspects of your book and i just uh, picked up your book yesterday, and so I did, didn't get to read it at the leisurely pace that I'd like to. But what, one of the things that I really enjoy with your book is you do chronicle Washington's early political career. It's interesting to me because he's the highest-ranking general in American history. But when we think of military leaders, even people that later go into politics, people like, uh, like Eisenhower, for instance, usually most of their career pre-retirement from the military, it's almost devoid of uh, political involvement. How did Washington balance being a soldier, being a surveyor, and being a politician, going all the way back to his time with the House of Burgesses in Virginia? I mean, it sort of of seems like three separate career paths that he was pursuing simultaneously.
12: Yeah, I mean, I've been chastised by military people to remember that the military can be a very political place, uh, that there's a lot of uh, jockeying around that goes in, sure. on inside the military. But the fact is um, he was not a full-time soldier except for the eight years of the uh, revolution. And the rest of his life, you know, in his mature life, he lived to be 67. Let's say there's 50 years. Um He was engaged principally in other pursuits, and in those pursuits, and particularly when he becomes the master of Mount Vernon and he becomes uh, a significant uh, landowner, uh, that involved public life, that involved getting involved in his community, and he was always deeply engaged in it. In the House of Burgesses, which was legislative, where he served 17 years, Wow. Twice as long as he led the Continental Army during the Revolution. Uh, He was a justice of the Fairfax County Court, which was an administrative body as well as a judicial body. And he also was on the vestry of his Anglican church, which had public responsibilities. So he was really a, a local political macher or figure and a significant one. And he made himself into one. He didn't start out as one but he figured out how to do it. And that was, in many ways, the most impressive thing to me, because in that era, oratory was the coin of the realm in politics. That's how you became great. Patrick Henry, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the great leaders were expected to be great speakers. Washington was a terrible speaker. He had a thin voice. He hated public speaking. Um, He was always shy about his own education, Hmm. and he avoided it, so he had to figure out other ways to do it and other ways to distinguish himself, which he did through taking on hard problems. His brand essentially become – and that's a 21st century phrase, of course, but his brand became the man who could get things done, the man you could rely on, a man you could trust, and – you know, when you think about it, that's a pretty powerful brand. Oh
1: yeah, uh, no, no question about <laughs> it. Uh, you you do spend some time going into his role as the president of the Constitutional Convention. Now, obviously, after the uh, Revolutionary War had ended, George Washington, I don't think anybody would dispute, was the biggest celebrity in the country. Now, as such, I can see a lot of different people wanting to attach themselves to him and to his brand and to have his celebrity around whatever came out of that Constitutional Convention. How did he actually do as President of the Constitutional Convention, was it mostly a figurehead role, or was he actually involved in the shaping of what became the Constitution?
12: That's a great question because he did hold himself above a lot of the back and forth that went on at the convention. His job was to ensure order to make things uh, to make make sure people were Observing proper protocol, but he didn't bring motions. He didn't get involved in negotiating individual sections. What he had, or phrases in the Constitution, what he had done, though, was before he got there, he had expressed very clearly his views in private letters. And this is a period when private letters of a political nature were shared, they were shown to other people. So it was private, but not really. And he made clear the things he thought the Constitution had to do, that it had to establish an executive branch, which we hadn't had under the Articles of Confederation, which is our first effort at the Constitution, that the national government had to be able to levy taxes without state approval. We'd always required that every state approve a national tax, so we never had one because there was always at least one state that said no. And finally, that the national government had to be supreme. It had that the states could not ignore what the national government told them to do. Otherwise, you don't have a nation. He made those clear and they became completely uncontroversial. Now, I'm sure he had engagement with people outside the convention. He was a socializer. He went out to dinner most nights. But I think he was very proper and did not. You know, proselytize, but they all knew what he thought. They all knew he was essential and that he would be the first president. And so the things he had made clear ahead of time that he wanted, they were just done. Mm
6: hmm. Mm hmm.
1: Uh, We're talking with uh, David O. Stewart. He's the author of the book George Washington, The Political Rise of America's Founding Father. We've had a a wide variety of personalities in the 45 individuals that have been president of the United States. You know, one thinks of someone like Donald Trump and whether you love his politics or you hate his politics, I don't think you could dispute the fact that he has been driven his whole life by just extreme ambition. Uh, Someone like Jimmy Carter, who we're also hearing a lot about this week, uh, probably much more humble and not really driven by that same sense of ambition, probably true of uh, someone like Gerald Ford as well. When we think of George Washington, at least when I think of George Washington, I think of someone so consumed with service. But what was the reality? Where was George Washington uh, in terms of the ambition scale? Was he closer to Donald Trump or Jimmy Carter?
12: I genuinely think there's probably only two or three presidents who didn't have much ambition, Uh, maybe Chester A. Arthur (laughs) and a Mm. couple of others. Washington was filled with ambition. He wanted to be something great, and he wanted to achieve great things. But he never let that overpower the values that he cared about. So, you know, the two most important things he did— where when the Revolutionary War ended, he resigned and went home. He didn't continue to command the army. He didn't take over the government, which he certainly could have done. He just went home, and that just earned the trust of every American. He wasn't power crazy. He would walk away. And then as president, after two terms, he declined running for a third term, even though most of his friends insisted that he had to. Again, he wanted to be sure that this was a nation that governed itself. That was the whole point of setting up the United States. And he was, you know, his ambitions had been off very much realized by then. But he also knew that by stepping away, he would set a, a tone and a uh, a model for the the nation, I think it's held very well
1: no question about it now in terms of his presidency itself, everything he did basically set the precedent for Every other president that came after him from forming a cabinet, from how you would address the president for when you should veto a bill to uh, any number of, of other things. His second term as president, and it's difficult for us to imagine now because so many of us view George Washington as almost this historic demigod. His second term as president had its fair share of difficulties, didn't it?
12: It did. Um, he, he actually set that precedent as well, which is most of our two-term <laughs> presidents, the second term isn't as good. <laughs> and that was his experience, too.
1: And what were some of the difficulties? What were the, the issues that he was facing and dealing with at the time?
12: Well, the the country got swept up into the Napoleonic Wars, which were over in Europe. But we had a have a serious faction that was very uh, sympathetic to the French who had allied with us during the revolution and been essential to our victory over the British. Um, And there were others uh, identified with the uh, Federalist Party or the emerging Federalist Party who sympathized with Britain and felt that, you know, those were the people we shared a heritage with, a language with, a culture and also the people that we did 95 percent of our trade with. And it would be madness not to get close to them and remain close to them for our own economic well-being. And that sort of took over our politics. Were you pro-French or were you pro-British? Uh, in hindsight, it looks kind of odd. Right. Why, why did we really care that much? But we did. And Washington got swept up in that. There were people calling for his impeachment during the second term. It it was an ugly time. And to be blunt, he resented it. (laughs) He, He never took criticism very well, and he didn't like it.
1: Oh, yeah, I I can imagine. Talking with David O. Stewart, check out his book, uh, George Washington, The Political Rise of America's Founding Father. You know, when we think of the names most associated with the Revolutionary War, you think of people like George Washington. You think of uh, John Hancock. You think of maybe John Adams, Ben Franklin. And the other name other than those four that you think of is Thomas Paine. Uh, Thomas Paine and George Washington got into quite a bit of a feud, didn't they? What was behind that?
12: Well, Washington tremendously valued Paine's service during the, the war and certainly his writings, Common Sense in particular, that rallied um, political feeling and support for the uh, the patriot cause. Um, thereafter, Paine really became... Uh, a, a very strong advocate for for France in this dispute that I was describing that developed between our factions. Um, he And that was all folded into the French Revolution in 1789, which was, to some extent, inspired by our revolution. And so Paine thought we had a duty to the French to support them. He went over to France to try to work with them, and when the revolutionaries sort of overplayed their hand in France and were out of power, Payne was thrown into jail. And he spent 18 months in prison, Mm. and he felt very much that Washington should have gotten him out of prison faster. Now, our ambassador there, James Monroe, actually did get Payne out of prison, ultimately, but pain it wasn't fast enough for pain, which I can understand prison is no fun, oh sure <laughs> so, uh but that that was the the final straw between them.
1: You alluded to his decision not to run for a third term. Was that decision made because of a frustration with the nature of how he was being criticized in his second term? Was it uh, made due to health issues? Or was it made, as it's often cast, for a desire not to see one man become too powerful? I think even King George III said if Washington really does step away, he'll be the greatest man of all time or something to that effect. What, was the, what were the factors that led to Washington's decision not to seek a third term?
12: I think all three of those factors were were in play and, and were significant. Um, I also think he felt old. You know, by our standards, he wasn't that old. He was sixty five, but he had already outlived all of his siblings, or, or he would, and he was the eldest of them. So it was a real feeling that the Washington men didn't live very long, and frankly, most many of them had not. So he just felt he was played out and it was time to go. Uh, he wanted to spend a few years back at Mount Vernon uh, with his, his, his wife. And I, I think at a very personal level, that's what he wanted. Um, it, it also, these other factors you talk about, particularly the notion that the nation should have to operate itself without this giant savior figure. Um, he, he was aware of how the, the support he commanded in the nation, but he, he wanted the nation to grow beyond that. And he also was weary of the the fighting, the, 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 the squabbling. Uh, if you read his farewell address, he, he addresses, he, he talks about that very clearly and very uh, uh, persuasively uh, as something that is inevitable in a democracy, but you really have to restrain yourself and not fall into it.
1: One of the aspects of his life and career that doesn't usually get talked about is the fact that uh, in his post-presidency, brief as it was, he had such credibility with the military that he came back to be the commanding general of the United States Army at the request of of President Adams, I'm wondering if you could talk a, a little bit about that a bit. Why did he come back to do that if he was so weary? And what did he actually do in that
0: role?
12: Well, happily, he didn't have to do much. Um, we had gotten into a, a pretty corrosive disagreement with France, uh, which had been. Uh, stiff-arming our uh, uh, diplomats and, frankly, uh, demanding bribes from them, which was not something we were going to do. And there was real outrage, and there was a sort of uh, undeclared war between the two countries through their ships. Uh, it's <coughs> Pardon me, it's sometimes referred to as the Quasi-War. So John Adams, we didn't have an army. I mean, we didn't like armies. So... John Adams said, well, gee, we probably ought to have one. <laughs> and, um, he just demanded that Washington take a, uh, agree to be commander in chief. Washington sort of dithered over it. He didn't much want to do it. But Adams appointed him without his consent. So Washington did answer the call. He had a few weeks when he huddled with some other people. He insisted that. You have Hamilton as his number two because he did not. Washington said he would never go into into the field. He would never go on campaign again. He was just too old and tired. Um, So he wanted someone much younger and more vigorous who could take on that duty if it was necessary. Happily, Adams was able to come to a diplomatic resolution of the situation. And Washington was never really required to do much.
6: You
1: destroyed the myth about uh, chopping down a cherry tree and skipping a silver dollar over the Potomac. What about uh, what about Washington's teeth? I know he had a difficult time with teeth uh, throughout his whole life, but uh, his dentures weren't actually wooden, were they?
12: They were not wooden. They were uh, made from walrus tusks and uh, uh, steel or iron at the time. Uh, They had Springs, and they also did have some human teeth in it, which he had purchased, which was something rich people did in the 18th century. The teeth are actually on display at Mount Vernon. They are ghastly. I mean, (laughs) when he becomes president, he has only one tooth left in his head, and that one fell out immediately. So I don't know how he ate, or or, you know (laughs) how he could speak. When you see this device, you could search it on. Google Images, there'll be pictures up the wazoo about it. And they're
1: horrible. Pardon me. Uh, Our owner, John Katsimatidis, sent us all the list of George Washington's rules for civility this week. There's some very interesting ones on there. Uh, Some might seem like common sense. Some you'd never think to think of. I'm wondering if you talk a little bit about the context that those rules were written in. And I'm wondering if you have a favorite rule of civility from George Washington.
12: Well, I, I've always liked the one that about y- you shouldn't uh, put your food in your mouth with your knife, um, which seems pretty, pretty sensible.
6: Yeah, that's true.
12: But, in fact, uh, I, am, I admit a minor- minority viewpoint on this. I think those rules were completely uns- insignificant to George Washington. Um, they were drafted by French monks in the 1590s almost two centuries before his, well, 150 years before his life. And I think the the document we have, which I have seen, uh, where he copied them out, I, I think it was a penmanship exercise. Really? Yeah. He, he was like a 13 years old. <clears throat> and it's in his workbook. And he never speaks of them again. Right, right interesting You know, people for decades would write washington for advice certainly his younger uh, relatives he had his pile of nephews and nieces would they would all write to uncle george to find out you know the, the key to life and success and he never mentioned him and i i just don't think i think this is something we have invented um it, it's nice for the publishing industry they sell those those Slick little volumes of them, um, but I just don't think he he, he cared.
1: It's pretty interesting. I, I'm glad we uh, glad we clarified that. I could talk with you all day, uh, but uh, rapidly running out of time. Uh, two final questions I want to ask you. You have a chapter in your book called Wrestling with Sin. And uh, George Washington is one of the founding fathers that is frequently in the targets of the cancelers. And it's because he owned slaves. And you write that he had uh, 135 slaves or so uh, at Mount Vernon. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about George Washington's relationship with the institution of slavery itself and his relationship with his slaves.
12: Uh, it's... You know, not a pretty chapter uh, until he's becomes commander-in-chief of the Con- Con- Continental Army. So he's in his early 40s. I could find no evidence that he had any second thoughts about slavery. It was just the world he lived in. The, slaves, the enslaved people were the labor force he had. Um, I think his service in the Army with— African-American soldiers who were suffering and dying and fighting for his freedom changed him. And he spends some time after the war saying he's going to be a good slave owner. That involved not breaking up families and that sort of thing. And after a few years, it seems that he really decided that that was ridiculous. You couldn't be a good slave owner. And he then spent about the last 10 years of his life trying to, Get get out of slavery himself. <clears throat> it was very difficult in his situation, as you say. He had 130 slaves at Mount Vernon that he owned, but there were also another almost 200 who were owned by his wife Martha's first husband's estate. This gets more legally complicated than anybody wants to at this time of the morning. Okay. But you, he couldn't he couldn't free them. It was not in his power. He had to buy them, and then he could free them. And he was never could raise the cash. It would have been a ton of money, and he never had much ready cash. He was land poor, his adult life. So in his will, he finally dealt with this as best he could, and he freed his own slaves, the ones he actually owned, 130 of them. And he... Did in his last 10 or 15 years frequently say in private he wished there would be gradual emancipation laws through the whole country. The northern states mostly adopted these, and it took sometimes 20, sometimes 40 years before the generations would turn over enough that slavery ended in those states, but it did. But the southern states would never go for it, and he never went public with Mm. his preference i think he didn't because he thought it it wasn't going to work and maybe he just didn't have the will to do it because they were all his relatives and friends who were the slave owners um but it's not a glorious episode uh he wasn't the worst but you know it's hard not to look at at his trajectory and say well there must have been something more he could, could have done.
1: We've been talking with David O. Stewart. You could check out his book, George Washington, The Political Rise of America's Founding Father. He also has a number of uh, interesting books, both nonfiction and fiction. And I have to tell you, David, I think the uh, history that you have writing uh, fiction actually comes across really well uh, in that this book, the George Washington book, is eminently readable. At times it does read like a novel or a political thriller. So I, it does seem like you have... Have the same sort of dramatic sense in writing nonfiction that you do in fiction. But I will um, I will end with this. You know, I, I do a podcast where we interview a lot of people about the mob. Uh, lawyers, mobsters, you know, uh, family members, uh, victims, all sorts of folks. And I always ask what they think the most realistic film about the mob is. I'm going to ask you the same thing about George Washington. He's been portrayed in film so many times. If you had to pick either a favorite depiction of George Washington or the most accurate depiction of George Washington in cinema what would you recommend to folks
12: oh that's such a hard question because I don't think he's ever been done very well Um, you know the Adams Chronicles or the John Adams I guess the HBO series
1: Mm. with uh, Paul Giamatti Um,
12: yeah, yeah, he played Adams, which wasn't surprising casting from my perspective, but I thought worked very well. Um, they took a shot at Washington, which was thoughtful and wasn't wrong, um, but it's hard to find an actor who has the same level of command and presence that Washington did. That's mm. just you know really tough. I mean, it's. I tend to think a guy like Liam Neeson maybe could do it or Lee Schreiber. I mean, these you have to – you've got to be big, and, <laughs> and you've got to come across as big. Um, and I forget the name of the fellow who p- portrayed him in that series, but he, he gave it a shot. He, he did um, capture Washington's reluctance to speak on public issues until he knew exactly what he thought. I think on occasion it came across as Washington was a little dumb, which I think is wrong. <laughs> so I, I think the the best w- version of Washington is still to be made.
1: All right. Uh, David Stewart, I appreciate the time very much. I'll look forward to chatting again soon. Whatever you're doing to celebrate uh, George Washington's birthday today, I hope you have fun.
12: Thanks so much.
1: Thank you, uh, David O. Stewart. You could check out uh, his book on George Washington or any of his other uh, books, which are terrific. You can go to his website, davidostewart.com, spelled exactly as it sounds. It's davidostewart.com. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'll take your calls in a moment at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of midnight. Midnight. Other side of Midnight with Frank Murano.
1: Of midnight. I'm Frank Marano. Uh, We'll take your calls in a moment at 800 848 9222. That's 1 800 848 9222. Today is Ash Wednesday, believe it or not. Uh, So it's not technically a holy day of obligation for Catholics, but it is a day where a lot of Catholics and Christians around the world go to church. Anyway, it is traditionally one of the most attended masses of the year. And it's increased, believe it or not, in recent years. So um, it's also the beginning of the Lenten season. So from now until Easter, it's supposed to be a time of prayer, of self-sacrifice, of reflection. And uh, I always try to do my part in, you know, abstaining from alcohol and it's for a few reasons. One, it's because it genuinely is a sacrifice, and I feel like it's in keeping with the Lenten tradition. Two, I feel like it's good for your body to do a total detox of alcohol for a little while. Probably good for your brain as well. You know, someone commented in the um, in the Facebook group, and you could join the Facebook group at Morano um, Radio Fans and Haters. Just search that. But uh, someone commented when I was describing Carmine's socks and the indentation it led it, it left on his leg, someone said it's called an ankle. And, you know, I realized looking at this, this person's exactly right. I could not remember the word ankle. And when th- this person is Thos Rod, who made that observation, and whenever that happens, whenever I can't come up with a word or something like that, which thankfully is still pretty rare immediately I start to think that I'm suffer I'm seeing the early stages of some sort of dementia and I hope and literally pray that I'm not but uh, they say uh, giving up alcohol or abstaining from alcohol can do a can do your body and your mind a world of good so whatever your Lenten sacrifice is if you're doing one at all, I'm wishing you the best maybe I'll see you at uh, at church today. And hopefully whatever you're giving up, it uh, you know, it's something that you don't have too tough a time with. But tough enough a time with. Until next hour, your influence counts, so use it.
0: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
1: Song on Ash Wednesday, right? Good morning, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, a couple of minutes ago, I alluded to the Facebook group. You know what someone else just put in there? They put, You should interview Richard M. Dolan, my so and so. I don't have the comment in front of me, but my brother, so and so, my friend, whatever, went to high school with him. And he's an author and he's written some interesting things. And I'd certainly like to have him on um but it occurred to me almost every day literally i get an email or a facebook message or a tweet that says you should interview blank you should interview so and so and before my last computer w- basically crapped out on me and i lost all the data that was on there i you know i keep a lot of lists of guests that i'd like to have on I keep sort of a running list on my phone, which is also synced to my computer. But I also have all sorts of other mini lists depending on the category. I have lists of people that I am always trying for. I have lists of people that I'm trying for for the day. I have lists of people that I'm trying for for the week. Uh, Lists of people that others can help me try for. But on my old computer, I had a list of dream guests. Guests that uh, it, it, it would be very difficult to ever get on the radio. But people that are living. But other than that, people that I would have a very tough time ever having on the air. Just because they're too big a star or whatever the case may be. So, and I thought one day maybe what we would do is I would reveal this list and then offer prizes to any members of uh, the audience that can help you know that can help uh try and you know try and get these guests on the air. So uh, that list is gone because it was part of my old computer. But I thought what might be fun is if you helped me assemble a new list of dream guests, guests that it's possible physically for me to interview. But folks that really maybe don't do a lot of interviews or they don't do radio interviews or whatever the case may be. They're such big stars. They don't need to do interviews, certainly not with someone like me. I thought it might be fun if we made a list of dream guests together. Now, I I just in the last couple of minutes as I've been talking here, I've jotted down a few names of people that I would really, really love to interview. I'll, I'll share them with you. But I'd love to see who you would love to see me interview. So I'll ask you the question if I could, if you had your druthers and I could interview anybody that's living, who would it be and why? 800 848 9222. I'm going to jot all these down and then maybe we will do a contest or something. Maybe we'll assign a point value to each of these guests and uh, we'll, you know, we'll see if uh, maybe we can get get a prize to give away to whomever gets X number of points, you know, 800-848-9222. For instance, maybe, you know, it's not that hard to get President Trump, but he's still obviously a very big news making guest, but he does do a lot of radio interviews. So maybe an interview with him is worth about 50 points. Whereas an interview with President Biden, who does no radio interviews, as far as I'm aware, Maybe that's worth 100 points, you know, although I'll be honest, if it's I don't think a Biden interview would be that interesting. I don't think these days he's that interesting. I mean, it would be newsworthy, but it wouldn't be that interesting. I mean, to me, the ideal uh, interview is someone that's either that I'm very interested in talking to or that's talking about something that's very interesting and that will make the interview newsworthy and somebody that's entertaining, and somebody that's relevant to a subject that's in the news. So give me yours. It could be any field. It could be entertainment, politics, sports, literature, you name it. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. I, draw, I just jotted down seven or eight names, and most of them are in the world of entertainment. Because honestly, when it comes to political figures, I'm not sure who I really am dying to interview at this point. Oh, actually, there's one I'm thinking. Let me put that person down. Okay, um, I'm not sure what political figures I'm really super interested in interviewing that I haven't already done. I mean, there's people that I'm always interested in talking to: uh, Ralph Nader, Jesse Ventura, uh, Pat Buchanan. But I've talked to them a bunch. You know, Andrew Yang. I had a very good interview with him. And it's funny, when I interviewed William Shatner Saturday in Englewood, that was the fourth or fifth time that I'd interviewed him. And what I said, and maybe people who were there didn't get this, I said to him, Alexander wept because there were no more worlds left to conquer. And what I meant by that, and it wasn't really clear, I mean, Uh, It's it's one thing for the radio audience to be uh, attuned to my level of uh, freewheeling tangents and, uh, you know, and freeform thinking. But it's another thing for a live audience to be attuned to it. But what I meant by that was I have wanted to do a series of interviews with William Shatner discussing Star Trek for so long that now that I've done it, what else do I have to strive for? So I'd at least like something or someone to be the next goal that I can pursue. So maybe you can give me some. Maybe it's someone that I haven't thought of, or maybe it's somebody that um, hearing you suggest it will give me the wherewithal to kind of reach out to them. All right. Give me your guess. Doesn't matter the field. Doesn't matter even if I don't know who they are. It could be somebody that's relatively obscure that you think that uh, would be interesting for me to hear – Talk to on the radio. 800-848-9222. Um, who would you like to hear me interview? It could be anybody in the world. Without regard to realism or anything like that. 800-848-9222. That's the question.
0: A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I
1: have awaited... I am constructing a dream list. Who should be on it? Gary and Inwood, who do you think?
3: Good morning, Frank. Uh for my own benefit or side effect, Tom Selleck from Blue Blood. Ah, that's a good one. That's a great pick. Uh, you know, Thank ha- you. have I you
1: have you heard him interviewed elsewhere? Yes, I have I've heard him on the and I thought it was gonna be really touchy. It was on the view. And it went very, very well. Really? You know, I yes, actually, I, I was surprised, you know, uh, because some people that especially w- w- it holds true with actors that seem really interesting and are very talented actors. They're actually pretty boring when it comes to being interviewed. The, the best example of that that I could think of is Robert De Niro. Great actor, certainly an interesting person, a complicated person. But I have never seen an interesting interview with Robert De Niro
4: ever. I mean, lousy, lousy interviews
1: to their Yeah, uh, thank you very much there, Gary. That's a good one. 800 848 John in Rockland, what do you have for us? Mel no Brooks. Mel Brooks, he's on my list. He is on my list, John. I think that you and I are on the, the same page. Absolutely. Mel Brooks is a great one. I just disconnected John there just because nobody could understand what he's saying. Robert is in Suffolk. Hello, Robert.
5: Hi, John. Uh, Three things, Frank. Uh, To answer your question, Jonathan Turley on constitutional free speech. Okay, yeah,
1: I think I've interviewed Jonathan Turley before, but that's not a bad one. He's so um, he's on media so much. I don't feel like that that would be a like a dream interview, like something that would be so difficult for me to get that I'd have to, like, send out a, a press release that I'm having Jonathan Turley on. But he's certainly an interesting guy. I'm not taking anything away from him. But who were your others?
7: Okay. Um,
3: I had one comment about uh, the MTA budget.
1: Okay, How well, let, we let's hold these... off on that, Robert. Thank you. Um, Kevin in Baltimore, who do you have for us?
5: Oh, no, you too.
1: Bono of U2, that's an interesting one. Uh, and I think I could do a good interview. I'm going to put him on the list because I think I could do a good interview with him because I'm not really that big of a U2 fan. So I wouldn't get starstruck the way I would with, say, a, uh, you know, I, I don't, like Mel Brooks, for instance, right? Um, but I could still, he's got enough of a body of work, both in music and philanthropy and everywhere else, that there's still a lot of other things to get into that's for sure 808489222 Jerry is in Brooklyn who do you have for us Jerry
13: Frank love your show love Thank the way you. you interview you
1: ask all the questions i would ask oh thanks that's Here's nice of the you. Thing. Mm-hmm. Dolly Parton Dolly Parton that is a great one that is a Let very I tell good one.
13: you i missed it i usually watch eat in entertainment tonight i tape inside edition and t- uh, yesterday morning sid said he saw entertainment tonight and it was all about her i am so sorry i didn't tape it she's just a she's just a good person she does a lot of things for people you know and yeah, i'm wondering and, and why. she actually
1: she actually played a big role in the development of one of the covid vaccines believe it or not there's a lot really? of layers to her yeah
13: that's why i'm saying she's such an interesting and good person You You know, and what I don't understand is why the stars are not getting involved and sending water. They are doing something. I don't understand. To where?
1: To where? To Ohio. Oh, to Ohio. Okay, yeah, Yeah. that's I mean, I'm sure knowing Dolly Parton, she's going to do something. uh, But uh, that's a good. That's a good one. I like that, Dolly Parton. You know, it's funny. Just going back to that Shatner show. Shatner. There was one, two, three, four of us in a room, including him, having dinner. Uh, on last Saturday night, and he says to the four of us, if you could have any five people over for dinner, who would it be? And one of the other women, one of the other people that was there, she was saying how one of the people that she'd pick would be Maya Angelou, another person would be the Dalai Lama, and another one would be, I don't remember who her other two was, but another one was uh, Dolly Parton. And Shatner got a big kick out of the fact that Brandy was going to have the Dalai Lama and Dolly Parton at the same dinner, so that was interesting. Um, all right, hey, Dr. Peter Mikolos, who is a fixture on uh, Katz and Crosby, who I, I don't understand if he's always up at this time listening. He should just come on, uh, Dr. Mikolos. You know you have a an open invitation to be on this show. He says uh, the person I should interview is Craig Venter, the person who first broke and documented the human genome. So, I, you know, I'm not too familiar with Craig Venter, but uh, I'll put him on the list. I do wonder, some people aren't necessarily that, especially this is true when it comes to scientists. They may be very smart, but it doesn't always translate as well in the field of science. Happens with a lot of writers, too. Some great writers aren't necessarily the best interview subjects. But I'm making my list. I'm checking it twice Dream interviewers, dream guests for the radio. Who should I put on? 800-848-9222. Marianne is in Queens. Hello, Marianne. Good
8: morning, Frank. Uh, my favorite is the Rocky star, Sylvester Stallone.
1: Sylvester Stallone, you said? Yes. Yeah, uh, well, that would be interesting. I'll, I'll throw him on the list. I don't know. The thing that you have to watch out for with super big celebrities like a Sylvester Stallone. And I agree with you. Sylvester Stallone has not only experienced a lot of interesting things, but he's done a lot of interesting things. There's so many things you could talk about him, right? He's he's part of this new show now, but he's also one of the most accomplished art collectors in the world. So you could talk to him about art, and he's a very good painter in his own right. A lot of people are surprised to hear that because of all these tough guy parts that he's played over the years and because of the way that he... Um, That he speaks, but my concern with someone like Sylvester Stallone, and this doesn't always hold hold true because, uh, well, whatever. I'm not going to get specific examples. Is he's been such a big star for so long that I'm concerned that he might be trained to be a little guarded and he wouldn't be as forthcoming as I'd like. Um, You know who I'd love to talk to, and I don't think I, I don't put this in the dream interview category. I think I could probably get him on is Frank Stallone. Frank Stallone is a very interesting guy, his brother. But I'll put Sly on the list. He's an interesting person. 800-848-9222. Diana is in New Jersey. Hello, Diana. Hi. Hi. Yeah, hi. Um, I was just reading a book about Lucille
8: Ball, which was quite interesting. But I thought one of her children, either Desi Arnaz Jr. or Lucy Arnaz, because I'm sure their life with their mother and what they went through with her, uh, would be very interesting to listen to, you
1: know uh, Diana, I agree with you, and i 've actually tried to reach out to Lucy Arnez a couple of times, and she uh, did, she didn 't want to come on with me so i don 't i don 't like to chase anybody, but uh, I would like to have her on and you know who she 's married to I believe she 's still married to him Lawrence Luckingbull, who uh played Spock 's brother in Star trek Five, which was directed by william Shatner, right, who was in whatever movie with Kevin Bacon. All right. 800-848-9222. But, you know, it's funny. Lucy Arnaz, uh, she performed at the Hilton Garden Inn on Staten Island where I got married. And she was at a show, like a dinner before the show with uh, the the then councilman. Now he's a a special assistant to Mayor Adams, uh, Jimmy Otto. And he told me some really interesting stories about Lucy, uh, Lucy Arnaz that I think she'd be a fascinating radio guest. I'm going to put her on the list there. All right. 800-848-9222. Pamela's in New Jersey. Hello, Pamela.
8: Oh, hello. um, Lana Wood, Natalie Wood's sister.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I, uh, I, I put her on my list when, uh, when her book came out. That's a good one. I'm going to reach out to her again, actually. That is a good one because she makes some pretty interesting allegations in this book about her sister's death. And, uh, it seems like she's probably a pretty good storyteller. All right, we got a few Joes on the line. Joe is in New Jersey. Hello, Joe.
3: Hey, Frank. Morning. Um, first, I don't think you realized it, but uh, the woman that called before saying sending water to to Ohio, that was Sid's mom. You're kidding. Was it? No, that 100%. That was that was sort of like I, I listen to him as much as I listen to you. But you can check with him in an hour when he comes in. But uh, his mom called in. I didn't think you knew. So I was like, no, I didn't.
1: Uh, Um, Wait, are you sure that that was his mom? Yeah.
3: Yeah. His mother, his mother is Naomi. So she would have used a pseudonym. She she said when, when Sid, she talked about Sid in the first, like, you know, when Sid talked about it and and with that accent, it was, it was, it was his mom.
1: I am skeptical. I don't think so. What, what name did she use? Does anybody remember what name she called in as? I don't
4: remember, but a lot of people sound like that. Yeah, they do. All right. Well, now, so uh,
1: double, you maintain double that, check me. that that was actually Naomi Rosenberg, but why wouldn't she call in and say it's Naomi?
3: I can't tell you, but I'll, I'll, I'll bet you a beer. If I call it all the time, I'll take you out, but... uh yeah, with
1: sir. All right. Well, I'm going to put you on hold so that I can get your contact and in- well, after you make your comment and so I can get your contact information so that once we determine and pull that audio Kenneth or uh, or Alex so that we can send it to Sid and have him verify this. But yeah, at- after your call terminates, I'm going to put you on hold so that one of us will make good after Lent on uh, on that beer bet. Who who what about an interview subject, Joe? Yeah.
3: I thought this would be interesting, uh, Bill Cosby, to talk about his career and then see if he wants to admit anything.
1: You know, that's a good one, Joe. Thank you. I I like that one a lot. Uh, But there's always the question when you talk about people like Bill Cosby or even O.J. Simpson uh, or uh, Robert Blake is by having someone that's become so well known for a crime on the on the radio do you do you risk kind of glorifying them for the crime that they committed? Do you think that's the case with Cosby?
3: Yeah, he's knocking on he's knocking on the door um, I, at this point. I, I just think uh, if you could get him to, you know, actually want to say sorry, then it, it's, it's worth the gamble. But okay. yeah, I, I can see what you're saying.
1: Yeah. No. no, All right. Bill Cosby, I'll put him on the list. Uh, as I mentioned, there are a bunch of Joe's on the line. Uh, Joe is in Florida. Hello, Joe.
5: Hey, good morning. Good morning. morning. Now from Florida, but formerly from Great Kills.
1: Wonderful. Well, uh, we miss you out there.
5: Yeah, I love I love Staten Island. But you know, how about uh Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr? They're always together lately. Uh, well, are they the always one there's together the other
1: in terms of doing interviews and stuff? Yeah. Yeah, oh, you know, that's a good one. I think um I think there are so many people better versed in the Beatles. Than I am, and I like the Beatles, and I like a lot of their work after the Beatles. You know, uh, Wings, and a lot of Ringo Starr's work even after the Beatles. But I just think there are so many obsessive Beatles fans. You know who I'd like to hear do that interview? Um, From the, uh, uh, formerly of the Fox News Channel, now he's with Newsmax, James Rosen. That man is a Beatles encyclopedia. And he would be able to ask them the kind of questions that I'm able to ask William Shatner. You know, he's just been preparing for that interview for 40 years. But, okay, I'll put them I'll put them on the list. That's not that's not bad. Joe is in Ron Concoma. Hello, Joe.
5: Hey, Frank, I got two for you. Um, one, Elon Musk.
1: Oh, that is a good one.
5: And I, this guy, it'd be hard to get a hold of. But what about Joe from Ron Concoma? <laughs> have a good night, Brian. Thank
1: you, Joe. I like that. 800 uh, 848 Marie is on Long Island. Hello, Marie. Good morning. I have a very good one. I just finished
8: her book. I'll tell you the title real quickly. My Life Among the Underdogs. Tia Torres. She's the big pit bull lady on TV. You know, pit bulls and paroles. Oh, sure. She's like my hero. Tell, Frank, me, she's, tell, tell she's me her, her name hero. again. Tell
1: me her name again.
8: Oh, Tia. T-I-A. Torres. T-O-R-R-E-S. Gotcha. She's from Pit... I'm sure you've heard of the show, Pitbulls and Paroles. I um,
1: I, I think I have, but honestly, I've I'm never sure seen her. Have. i you have. But uh, she sounds interesting. I, I, I'm a dog person. I'm a big, big, big Pit Bull advocate. I'm on my
8: third rescue. I I do volunteer work for the shelters out here on the East end and the whole story about pit bulls. And, 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 (laughs) oh, anyway, I'm not going to bring up anything else about that, but it's a phenomenal story about dogs. If you love dogs, all kinds of dogs, too. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, well, I I'll, I'll th-
1: check it out, Marie. Thank you. Um, by the way, I think I said I was going to put that fellow Joe on hold, and I hung up on him, I think. So Joe—oh, he called back. Good. Okay. Because i got to make sure once Sid confirms whether or not that was his mom that uh, that I get my beer, because I'm already plotting. I didn't really get a Fat Tuesday celebration. I had one white claw with dinner. That was the extent of my uh, pre-Lenten drinking But uh, let me know who you could – if I could interview anybody that's alive, who would it be? 800-848-9222. Leslie is in Forest Hills. Hello, Leslie.
8: Uh, Melinda Katz, the
1: district attorney
8: of Queens County, and Curtis Sleeve, ex-wife.
1: Well – I mean, she, I heard her on another radio show the other day, and I remember listening to that. I'm not going to put her on the list because I remember listening to that, and I thought the same thing that I uh, have thought every time I've heard her speak, whether it's me speaking with her or whether I've heard her on radio TV. She has got to be the most boring person in the entire world. I mean, it, to me, I don't find her to be that interesting. What, why do you think she's so interesting?
8: Because it's controversial, what can I tell you? Yeah, and she's she's and, and I do believe she's very effective as the district attorney in Queens County. It's a complete opposite of the Manhattan district attorney, who is a joke.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I'm not going to uh, certainly. I uh, don't think Alan Alvin Bragg is doing a good job. I think Melinda Katz is doing a horrendous job as district attorney. I think uh, she shows up when she can get a uh, headline somewhere, but I think she's a disaster. As district attorney, I hope she loses this year. I mean, she's unlikely to lose, but she's facing a Democratic primary. But I, I think she's horrible as a D.A. And uh, she uh, she kind of goes with whatever way the wind was blowing. I'm sorry she won. I think Greg Lacek would have been a much better pick. And uh, I think she's she's just as bad as any of the other D.A.s in in New York City. Maybe not as bad as Alvin Bragg, but almost. Almost uh, the only D.A. in the city of New York, honestly, that I really think is doing a very good job is mine, uh, Mike McMahon. But uh, I, I don't think that she would be interesting at all. I'm not putting her on the list. She, she's one of the most boring people that I've ever heard. Did you hear that interview she did the other day on the radio show formerly known as Cats at Night? First of all, she speaks in this monotone voice and it sounds like she's reading. Even when she's talking, and, and again, she was always nice to me when she and Curtis were uh, in a relationship. But uh, Now, I'd love to talk to her about that, but she would never do that. So she's got no sense of humor. She is, um, first of all, I think she's a disaster as a public official. She's a total political partisan hack. And she would never talk about the Curtis relationship. She would politely demure. And then pivot to talking about something else. If she would talk about something <laughs> real, that's, you know, what you know what I'd love to do? And I, I would love to do a roundtable, and I'm being sincere about this, with all four of Curtis's wives and Melinda wow. Katz, right? So you got uh, Corinne, Lisa, Mary, who's now the wife of Governor David Patterson, Melinda Katz and Nancy now that that would be like pay-per-view okay that would be the kind of show that would be the kind of interview I'd love to do 800 I would pay them to be able to do that interview what the hell are you talking about John uh, uh John is in Brooklyn who do you have John
4: hello Frank hello John
1: who do you have for us John
4: um I, I have a collective range. Historian Gordon Wood. Well, who is that, Gordon Wood? Wood, yes.
1: Um, what What's his specialization?
4: He is the foremost historian on the founding of the American Republic and on the American Revolution. One of my college professors at Brown University. Okay. Photographer uh-huh. Donna Ferrato, who lives in Manhattan, who is one of our great photographers. She's also... An acquaintance of mine.
1: And what, why is she interesting, Donna Frato?
4: Donna, Donna has been photographing the uh, lives of people caught in dysfunctional relationships families. And looking at women for years. She is one of our finest documentary photographers.
1: Okay, all right. Uh, that, that actually doesn't... I mean, I don't know if it's dream interview category, but okay, that does sound uh, interesting. And who else?
4: Here's a musician I'll mention. And uh, he has a lot of great stories about—I think he could tell you about Douglas Adams and even Richard Dawkins, believe it. Charlie Morgan, who is the drummer for Orleans. But for a while, he was also a drummer for a rock musician you may have heard of, Elton John.
1: Oh, well, I feel like Elton John would be an interesting interview. And and thank well, you, John. The The three that he mentioned— I don't feel like that's really in keeping with the exercise. I mean, the way I view this, it's almost like a fantasy baseball team, right? You can draft anyone you want to play any position. You could put you could put uh, Pete Alonso at uh, at first base, then you can have uh, uh, you know Derek Jeter at shortstop, A Rod at third. You know, you could pl- put anybody, and you know, I feel like the three people that he suggested would be interesting. But is it on the same level as, say, a Mel Brooks or a Sylvester Stallone? Um, I don't think so. 800 Stanley's in Astoria. Hello, Stanley.
3: Hi, Frank. How you doing? The uh, guy that I would like you to interview is uh, somebody with a lot of radio time under his belt, uh, Jonathan Schwartz. Jonathan Schwartz, that's
1: not bad. Yeah, that's not bad. Um, uh, that's actually a pretty good suggestion. I would like to do that.
3: I know you had his uh, one of his uh, one of the people that he was friends with too, Jeffrey Lyons, when he was uh, promoting his. Uh Ernest Hemingway book. I thought you had a great interview with him, but it was only—it was very short. What, I think I you mean, could fill a
1: lot more time with him. Well, uh, thank you, uh, Jeffrey is probably listening right now. He emails me almost every day with uh, a comment or two. I—I uh, I would love to do an hour with Jeffrey Lyons. Now, I know Jeffrey pretty well, and anytime he wants to do an hour, I've made clear that he is uh, absolutely welcome to. 800-848-9222. All right. A bunch of people holding here. I'm going to go to people in the order in which they've been holding. Tony is in Florida. Tony, what do you think? Hey, Frank. Well, first I wanted
8: to say I should have picked what uh, my fellow Floridian picked, was the Beatles, because they're walking history. Mm -hmm. And I just love to talk to them. But I'm not a big fan of Hollywood, by personal experience, they have all are too self-important, all the way down to the lowliest person on a set.
6: Okay, so but what's your suggestion, Tony?
8: Would be um, Johnny Depp, and the reason why is I've always admired his movies, but he was a great actor, but I uh, didn't really care one way or the other about him. Until recently, I got sucked into that uh, that trial, and he seems like a genuinely nice person. He's very talented in music, art, acting. And uh, he seems to have a great sense of
1: humor, so that's why I would pick. Well, and thank you, uh, Tony. That's not bad. And now, obviously, with the, all the the lawsuit that he was involved in and the litigation, I think that's interesting, too. You know, he's got kind of a weird way about him. I, and I could just picture him taking forever to answer my questions and meandering all over the place. It, you know, it's, it's almost like, you know, when I can do my fantasy interviews of anybody that's lived, I never pick Jesus because— I feel like interviewing Jesus would be similar to interviewing Johnny Depp that he would meander he'd speak in parables it would be tough to d- divine what he was saying but um in defense of Johnny Depp as an interview subject Larry King when he left CNN um I- I'm not you know I'm not particularly interested in Johnny Depp but um Larry King did a special. He did a series of specials on CNN. I think it might have only just been one. And his first person that he interviewed was Johnny Depp. And my friend Joe Borelli was over. And I said, I got to watch CNN. I want to watch this special. And Joe said, what, you're that interested in Johnny Depp? I said, no, I just want to see Larry King ask questions. To me, that was the interesting aspect of it. And it was interesting. But it was almost like a Barbara Walters style interesting You know, where they you could tell they taped him for two days asking questions and then they just picked the most interesting 45 minutes. That's the thing with Barbara Walters, um, as opposed to a Larry King, is she was a, a, a talented TV producer and she did have a nose for news and she did have a talent at getting great guests. But she didn't really do what I do. You know, when I interview someone, what you hear is what you get. Right. With Barbara Walters. She would interview with someone for an hour, hour and a half, and then take the most, ten, the, the most interesting newsmaking 10 minutes. Nothing against her. That worked for her, clearly. But uh, for a live radio show, I don't know that that has the same kind of resonance. But um, I could see the appeal of Johnny Depp. Not as much to put him on the list, though, honestly, in terms of a dream interview. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. 9222 Tom is in the Bronx. I know this will be a good one. Hello, Tom. Yeah, is
9: how,
5: uh, Frank, how about Lauren Graham of the Gilmore Girls?
1: You know, my yes, wife great show. is, I am shocked to hear you say that because I don't feel like you've watched television in 20 years. But um, Laur- Lauren Graham is one of my wife's favorites, and she was great on Curb Your Enthusiasm as well. My wife just finished her book, and she found her very amusing. Um, why, Why? Um, just because it was a good show, you think she'd be a good interview subject?
5: Yeah, I think so. And uh, maybe some of the other people that work with her, the that played Rory.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure what I'd ask her. Uh, honestly, I mean, I'm sure I could prepare something, but I'll tell you who I'd like to interview from that show is Sally Struthers, who was uh, who was on that show briefly. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Chris is in page. Hello, Chris.
5: Hey Frank. Um, listen, I'm a big radio junkie, and here's the premise, though. When you say all star or whatever you want to hear from Dream Interview. I would love for you to interview these three people, but they have to be completely forthcoming, which is going to be hard to do, so I probably won't get my wish, but definitely Howard Stern. I would love for you to interview. How good would that be? Has anyone ever sat down with that guy and uh, talk well, about him?
1: Yeah, a couple. A, you know, uh, Certainly David Letterman did on his Netflix show, but let me hear your
5: others. All right. Uh, Mark Simone, because mm-hmm. I really— because that guy is not forthcoming. Nobody knows about his personal life. He never talks about it. I'd love to hear him. But would he be forthcoming? Probably not. And number three is, I got to say, warts and all, Bill O'Reilly. Can people talk to him and find out, you know, he's had a very controversial life. But you don't hear about it on the radio. Uh, warts and all, can we hear from Bill O'Reilly? Those three people I would love interview, But they probably wouldn't be forthcoming, and that would be the problem.
1: Well, I think Howard would. I know Mark Simone would not. Uh, O'Reilly would be somewhere in between. Mark, Mark, again, I don't want to say anything negative about Mark, but Mark is one of the most guarded people in the world. He would never let his guard down, especially not to me. Uh, for the purposes of an interview. It would just be a superficial interview consisting of quips and one-liners. That would be where that goes. Um, the other two, I think that w- those would be interesting. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Helen is in Connecticut. Hello, Helen.
13: Hello there. Hi. So I think Henry Kissinger would be a really interesting interview, especially with what's happening now
1: in... Uh, with China yeah oh in China yeah that is um that is a good one actually and uh he you know he's in his 90s now so I'd better hurry up on that one that's good all right we're gonna do lightning round we and then we have to get to the thousand dollar minute so just uh we'll go through these as quickly as we can here Don who do you have for us
5: Connie Francis, one of the best music career. Her Bobby Darin, her parents, her brother's murder. Great interview. You know, I
1: love Connie Francis, and I've been thinking about that, but I heard her on with Cousin Brucie and with Tony Orlando. I'll be honest, she doesn't sound good anymore, I don't think. And uh, I don't think that fits my category of a dream interview. Larry on Long Island.
5: Frank, this would be, for
4: me, one of the greatest interviews. Mario Batali
1: mario batali okay and why 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 do you think that would be so interesting
4: because this was a man who fell from grace he was on food network for so many years he had restaurants with 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 lydia Bastianich, and then he went through all the sexual assault trials he went through and you don't see him anymore he's absolutely out of the public's eye and he's just—he fell from grace. You know that's a great—that's
1: uh, a great one. Actually, I'll put him on the list. Uh, Bert in Ukraine. Who do you have for us?
8: Hey there, uh, Frank. Um, given your views on
7: the war in Ukraine, um, it would be interesting to he- hear a discussion, an interview with Sean Penn. Oh, ah, um, okay. Especially given his documentary, his recent documentary on Ukraine. Okay, that's not bad. So that, okay, Sean Penn. Ray in the Bronx. Who do
1: you have for us? Yes, right. Um, Who do you have? Inter-
5: interview with interview with a vampire. Now, how about Mike Bloomberg? <laughs> Jimmy. Yes, I got. How about the good, interesting guy who's got some common sense? Denzel Washington.
1: Denzel Washington. Okay, uh, he's not. I wouldn't have thought that but okay i could see that um and uh, you gave me an idea for another another actor as well that i'm gonna put on my list all right i'm gonna i'm gonna see if we can pursue this uh somehow and maybe have prizes for anybody that can accumulate can get one of these people all right uh 800 that's 800 if you're the seventh caller to that number we're going to give you a chance to play the $1,000 Minute. That's 1-800-848-9222. And uh, if you can answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, we will make you a thousandaire. So go ahead and be the seventh caller to 800-848-9222. We'll play the $1,000 Minute straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. other side of midnight with Frank morano
8: hey baby jump over here when you
6: do the ooby-dooby i just got to be near ooby-dooby ooby-dooby ooby right, do the ooby-dooby ooby do ooby-dooby be do be do do be do be do do
1: By Roy Orbison. Uh, this was a um, a request from none other than uh, actually I don't know who this was a request from, uh, but uh, whatever it got in our rotation somehow. It must have been must have been a reason we wanted to play it, but um, can't remember for the life of me who it is that requested it. All right. Um, oh, you know who it was. A fellow that I used to work with when I was in the event videography business, Early West, Eartley, I think was his name, and he was a musician, and uh, he ended up uh, performing at a lot of the same places that uh, I would do videography. And this is certainly uh, certainly a good choice. I think this was his. All right, um, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on anything we're talking about. But in the meantime, it's time for us to play.
0: The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. All right, let's
1: say hello to Brandon in New Jersey. Hello there, Brandon.
3: Hi, Frank. Pleasure.
1: Uh, Brandon, uh, what what brings you awake at this time of the day? I work overnight
3: at UPS, so I'm just getting out of work.
1: Oh, great. Okay. All right. Have you heard this segment before? Yes. Okay, so you know what to do, right?
3: Yes, sir. All right, let's get started.
1: Name a television network. Uh, CBS. What playwright wrote Romeo and Juliet? Uh, William Shakespeare. What golfer has won the most PGA tournaments?
3: Um, shot in the Dark, Tiger Woods.
1: Who is the president of China?
3: Um, isn't it Xi uh, Ching?
1: Who is the only president of the United States to serve two non-consecutive terms?
5: Oh, boy. Um,
1: Same last name as a city.
5: uh,
3: Oh, Grover, Cleveland.
1: What state does Bernie Sanders represent in the U.S. Senate?
3: Um, Um... I can't think of does it. it New York or not?
1: No, unfortunately not. He's from New York, and this state actually used to be part of New York before it separated. He represents Vermont, uh, Brandon. Okay. So I'm sorry you didn't win, but second, uh, yes. you made it up to question six. I'm going to put you on hold. We're going to give you a consolation prize, okay?
6: All right. Thank All right, you, Frank. Thanks,
1: Brandon. Good luck uh, getting home safely after your UPS deliveries and everything. It can be a struggle being awake at this time. So uh, I like that guy, Brandon. There was something about him that kind of... You know what it was? He was on a good phone line. For me, you're on a good phone line. I don't have to struggle to hear you. It counts for a lot, right? And it does make me like you more, I do have to say. All right, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on anything we have talked about thus far. I do want to wish a happy birthday to uh, Meryl Rosner, who is one of our great listeners an incredibly talented artists. And every year she makes uh, our artwork for the New Year's Eve Eve invitation. And uh, she's really just and a nice lady. And uh, she did send me a list of birthday bumper music su- suggestions. And uh, I submitted them all to the powers that be. And unfortunately, none of them got picked because of the radio deep state that we uh, that we have going. So I'm sorry. Hopefully... Some of them end up getting uh, picked tomorrow. I want to wish a happy birthday as well to actress Jerry Ryan. I believe she is in the new season of Picard, but I haven't seen it yet. She was in the first two seasons, and she was great. I mean, you talk about one of the most beautiful women of all time. It's Jerry Ryan. She also happens to be a very talented actress uh, as well. She, of course, probably best known for uh, playing Seven of Nine, on Star Trek Voyager, but a lot of people blame her for Barack Obama becoming president. I'm not going to go that far, but some people do, uh, because her she had a very messy public divorce from Michael Ryan, who was the leading candidate for U.S. Senate from uh, from Illinois at that time as a Republican, and then he had to drop out of the race because of the revelations that came out about their divorce, and then obviously Barack Obama was able to almost walk into the office um, and beat Alan Keyes. And then, obviously, two years later, he was running for president. So, alright four eight nine two two two. right, 800-848-9222. Uh, I did want to mention that I finally, my wife and I yesterday, finally finished a film that we had started last Friday. That's the way our lives are now. We have so little time to do anything. <laughs> that, um that it takes us three sittings to watch a movie. And so we watched The Fablemans, which is nominated for a bunch of Academy Awards this year. And it's it's nominated for seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor. And it's a Steven Spielberg film. And it's supposedly a semi-autobiographical semi-autobi- story, loosely based on uh, Steven Spielberg's adolescence, and you could kind of see it. Uh, you know, while it's never ideal, and my wife and I kind of agreed as we were comparing notes on the film last night, it's never ideal to watch this film in three parts. It was really good, especially given the, uh, the fact that some of the other Oscar-nominated films that we've seen so far have been so depressing. So uh, I really do recommend it. It's essentially about it takes place in the fifties and sixties, and you have a it's a very good cast a husband and wife Michelle Williams and Paul Dano, and they have a friend named Seth Rogen, and they they have a family, and it, it's about the, this family going through regular difficulties. The father advancing career-wise they have to move to Arizona they have to move to California the, the relationship has its its problems I'm not going to get into any details but um it was re- it's really in some ways a very typical coming of age story and like a lot of Spielberg movies there's always these these issues of that people have with their with their father. It was written by uh, not just Spielberg but Tony Kushner one of the best-known writers of all time who did Angels in America and a bunch of other things. But I liked it. I think of all the – other than Top Gun, which is still my favorite, of all the Oscar-nominated films uh, so far, I think this one is probably the one that I enjoyed the most. So I do recommend it. It's called The Fablemans, and I we rented it twice for $6 a pop on uh, Apple TV. It was good. Um, funny at times, dramatic at times, I, I liked it. Uh, Steven Spielberg was on the Today Show last year talking about the Fablemans and the autobiographical nature
12: of it. I'm a very private person.
11: I would never ordinarily take anything like this public. But after my mom passed, um, and I really got to thinking about
12: the sum total of our relationship, which was a great relationship, but
3: it was also challenging. Yeah, Dad was Greatest Generation. He wanted for me to have a bedrock life, And he felt that being a movie director was a pipe dream.
0: It was going to be like quicksand. Whereas my mom said, go for it. (laughs) Just go for it, Steve.
1: So um, I thought that was interesting. And then um, there was, you know, Judd Hirsch is very good. He plays the uncle in this. And I saw some complaints in one Jewish newspaper that I read that they thought this was too too much of a stereotypical Jewish performance? I didn't think so. I mean, I feel like I've known characters like the one that Judd Hirsch plays in the film. So CBS Sunday Morning did a profile on Judd Hirsch. He's 89, nine, eight. excuse me, 87 years old. And he's great in this picture. And he's nominated for an Oscar. And they have to give it to him. He's got to win. He's got to win. How many more Oscar nominations is he going to have? And uh, he's terrific. So he was on CBS Sunday morning talking about his performance in The Fablemans.
0: So Steven Spielberg calls me up and says, um, uh, I need someone as this part of the guy who made me become a director. He said, it's an old uncle, great uncle. So I'm going, okay, no background, nothing,
7: nothing, nothing. With a blank canvas, Hirsch thought back to his days growing up under the shadow of the Wonder Wheel. He's not going to describe this guy, you know, and he expects that I'm going to be like him. Okay, let me take my experience stick it in
1: there. The only one I had was Coney And his experiences here as a boy helped him find Uncle Boris in the Fablemans. To me, this was the circus around the corner. It really was a circus. The part they played in Fablemans, I think, brought the whole thing out. And it was great. I did watch that. And that's our friend Ben Mankiewicz, who's been a guest on this show, who's terrific. And I enjoyed seeing Judd Hirsch go back to Coney Island and walk the boardwalk. I'm a big Coney Island fan, uh, so it was nice to see that whole thing. But I'm giving a strong recommendation to the Fablemans. 15 seconds of fame in a moment. If you would like to be heard, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. greatest. We miss him, uh, unfortunately, taken from us uh, far too soon after his uh, battle with Parkinson's. All right, without further ado, it is time for you to be heard.
0: The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Mike and
3: Montclair. Good morning, Frank. George Washington and Martha were having a quiet dinner to discuss their upcoming marriage. And during a, a pause... He leaned in and asked her thoughts on sex. She hesitated and replied, I would like it infrequently. Then he asked, Is that one word or two? <laughs>
1: Nancy!
8: Floyd Vivino should be your guest for uh,
1: interviewing. Uh, you know, I've interviewed Uncle Floyd many times. Bill in Maryland.
5: Uh, hey, Craig, good morning. Uh, I'd like to hear you interview Jordan Peterson. You know,
1: a bunch of people actually emailed me. That's a good one. And finally, Rick.
5: Yeah, I'd love you to use your AI program and have an interview with Hal the Computer. That's Find a good one.
1: Really I to. like that. All right, I'll be back tomorrow with Brian Kilmead and the AC Report. Frank Moreno, good day.